In this episode, I travel to deepest Wales to visit Drala Jong, the headquarters and retreat center of the Aroter sect of Tibetan Buddhism. I first interviewed the leaders of the sect, Nagchang Rinpoche and Kandro Dechen, several years ago in an intimate interview in their home, during which they recounted the origin of their treasure-revealed lineage and discussed subjects such as crazy wisdom, mahasiddhas, and compassion as appreciation. In this episode, Nakchang Rinpoche and Kandra Dechen give a tour of the grounds of Dralajong, discuss the esoteric geomancy of the site, and reveal the methods used to identify and propitiate the local spirit of the land. Nagchang Rinpoche and Kandra Dechen detail the methods and practices of the Ter, guide practice sessions in the Dzogchen meditation of sky gazing and other techniques, and tell stories of their lamas, such as Kunzang Dorje Rinpoche, Chime Rigzen Rinpoche, Dujom Rinpoche, and more. I also meet the ordained caretakers of the center, witness the Sangha in their daily rituals of chanting and song, and receive a lesson in their physical movement system of Kunye from lineage specialist Sange Atsal. So without further ado, Drala Jong. Welcome. <laughs> so this is Drala Jong. Yes, indeed. The front entrance. So perhaps you could explain a bit what's what we're looking at here. We're mainly looking at a French drain here. <laughs> uh, this is uh, to soak up rainwater because when we get bad rain, it really comes down here in a torrent. and We've had to do a lot of work to prevent the place from flooding, but uh, I think we've cured it now. So I, this is the quadrangle, I suppose which is eventually going to be flagged. Unfortunately, we have to lose the lovely chestnut tree because um, we were told that if we just let it grow, it would become enormous and the roots would undermine the foundations of the buildings. So, so that will have to go. And then the whole area will be flagged anyway for, um, and there'll be a culvert that goes under here to you know, take the um, rainwater. And then this will be an area for uh, Lama dance, for, you know, chum. And down at the bottom, you see that stone? You see that little yeah. white stone there? That's the site for the um, monumental Purva. Oh, yes. Which will be a, uh, roughly 25 foot tall. It's already been made and is in Austria at the moment. It was made in Austria. We have a student there who's um, uh, exceptionally gifted with mechanical objects. And he's, um, he's designed the internal structure of the Porba to be, uh, it's, it's based on aircraft fuselage design. So the thing is incredibly light which has saved us a great deal of money on foundations and also transportation. So that's going to come over at some point when we raise the money to excavate for the foundations for it. How big is it? Oh, 25 foot high. What? So that's, that, that will go there. As big as that there. tree? Or taller? Uh, yeah. yeah. 
because Dojipurba is one of the main practices, so that's that's an important thing. The the site was established by Katrul Wangchuk uh, Rigsen Rinpoche, who who came here, went all over the uh, land and designated that as the spot for it. Amazing. Mm. He did some interesting rituals, didn't he? Sort of geomancy, yes. working out the site. Um, at one point he took some milk and put it into a depression in the ground and, and measured the time it took to soak away to see whether it was a suitable um, position from um, the local beings, the, mm. the, kan the Kandros, and, um, to see if it was auspicious. So he checked out it's, that that was suitable. He's, he's the incarnation of, of Kachen Pagi Wangchuk, who was one of the 25 disciples of Gurumbache and Yeshitsogyal. Uh, he was the one who specialized in Purba. So he, he's, he was the ideal person to find the place. That's actually a question I had. Uh, was do, Have you done anything in terms of, or considered, anything in terms of land spirits and loo and all this sort of thing it's commonly done in yes. uh, in in uh, uh well mm. go ahead yes we've done that we've uh we spent some time um looking at that it's rather a long story uh it goes right back to my meeting with um uh Kevin back in 1971 one of the things he asked me was about uh, local protectors where I came from. And um, I said, I, I don't know anything. <laughs> and he said, yeah, you know. And um, he said, you are knowing from very small. I thought, I wonder what he's referring to here. And, I, and so I said, you mean the, the Norse gods? because I was very interested in Viking culture when I was young. So I knew quite a lot about it. And so he said, you, you pictures bringing. So uh, the next time I went out, I, I took pictures of, of Thor, Odin, and um, you know, the whole range. And he, he looked at Odin and he, he said, this one, Ekajati. And then there was the Midgard serpent Jumanganda, and he said, this one's Rahula, and, uh, and then it was Thor, he said, this one Dojelekpa. And so that gave us the idea when we were looking at this place to look at what was already known here. Um, and we, I, I got a book of um, of uh, local beings, you know, the, the kind of, um, this grimoire that turned out to be in French and I couldn't read it. <laughs> so it went to Jalme, who is French. He read it and told us what was in it, who was there. And there was one particular one called Yan Gantitan, which, which means Jack with the fire. And he was depicted in a certain form with his hand out holding this sort of great blazing mass and um and we then looked through the um correspondences and the closest we could find was 
Dumchen Nojin Barwa Mezea, who is very similar, and so that's the one we have here. And what did you do to do you appreciate them, or do you, is there some sort of procedure? Yeah, there are there are mantra practices or around him and we uh, practice that here and we've uh, produced a tanka of uh, of Baramezea uh, which you'll see later it's um, yeah and so uh, you know we have a sense of of that here of uh, of, of there being a um, a personality of the place and I suppose uh, we relate to him as the personality of the place. We don't really go in for a great deal of Maha Yoga ritual in this tradition, and so how we relate to Barwa is is more in terms of a gestalt. Mm-hmm. And what are the characteristics of that gestalt that you've observed? Uh, liveliness and humour, largely. It's uh, That's... Um, he might not look particularly humorous, but, uh, well, you'll see. We'll show you the picture. We had it painted by the son of Gegalama. Um, <laughs> his name always slips, but... We know, his f- we know his father because we've been using his um, book of line drawings as references for the last 30 years. So he's son of Gegalama, you know, but he's, um, he's a, a very talented tanka painter, you know, Tibetan. He lives in Belgium. And um, so he's been painting some tankas for us because although we have our own tanka painters, they can't keep up with the work and mm. so we have to farm some of them out to him and um, he made a wonderful job of it really wonderful um, and he's uh, produced some others for us as well for book covers and, and whatever so what's uh here's the main house behind you and there are these two wings here mm-hmm. coming off to the side what is currently happening in there and what do you have planned for them? Well, the one on the right, looking downwards, we're never sure whether to call it the left wing or the right wing because you don't know which way you're facing, but um, but this is the wing that's been um, uh, renovated. Apart from this piece on the end, which is which is untouched still, but the other part is all habitable. The bottom part is the shrine hall, and then the next part up is where Metsa and Jagyo live. Uh, this lean-to here, uh, which I don't know when that was added, but that's a modern addition, maybe in the last hundred years, I suppose. Uh, that's going to be demolished and rebuilt. It'll come out a yard or so further and it will extend up to the window and down to the door and it will have a pitched roof on it that goes back up to the height of the main roof. And that will then be their kitchen dining room. 
and then in the end here uh, this is going to be a uh, in the back portion will be a disabled bedroom bathroom and in the front portion there'll be the office where Metzel and Jagger will work because they're both writers so they'll still be there at their computers and in the back wall here this works out amazingly conveniently there'll be a window so that uh, they'll be able to see who's ever visiting just looking up the drive so so that's that um, that's maybe the n the next thing that will happen um, the the kitchen dining room thing is um, rather important that it happens first because um, at the moment we still have a kitchenette at the end of the shrine hall which is um, holding us up from building shrine cabinets or doing anything you know permanent in there well, it's, it's painted but that's that's all and we've got a screen up that screens off the um, kitchenette so the kitchenette will then move into there and then we'll be able to uh, start working on it we've got a Dwangrup will come over from Switzerland he's uh, he's uh, he's what you describe as a Gansemacher you know he does everything he's uh, he's a carpenter metal worker and um, so he's going to build the shrine cabinets and the throne for the statue of Dujra Mimbache because we've had um, we're having a statue of Dujra Mimbache made the Dujra Jigdrelichi Doji and uh, which has an interesting sort of history because I was looking on the web for pictures of Dujramobache and I came across a statue uh, of him, uh, a lifelike statue. I, I, I'd seen them before, but not with a face like this. The face was how he was when I first met him and it was really lifelike. And, and I kept it uh, on my iPhone and we went to Bhutan and I thought well I'll generally ask around because there was no information as to the provenance of, of this statue it was interesting because the whole body was grey and the face was painted it was obviously grey primer you know the thing had not been painted yet and um, I tried in Nepal nobody knew anything about it there but when we got to uh, Bhutan, our guide, um, Sonam Yalsen, we showed it to him and he said, he said, you're going there. <laughs> so it was at uh, Chadolakang. And sure enough, we walk in the door and there's the statue. So we asked about it. We said, oh, we'd like to have one of these made. And he said, yeah, the body was made here, but the head was made in America. And it turned out that the head had been commissioned by Dungse Trinlinorber and Boucher, and and he had overseen it in minute detail. So you know, because Dungse Boucher was his father, and, and he wa wanted it looking really exactly as he was. And uh, so Jagio then 
found the two ladies, the two sculptors who'd made the head, and then we commissioned one from them, and they very kindly agreed to make it. So this will be the only other one in the world, you know, the one in Chad or Lakang and one here. You've got the head already, haven't you? We have, we've got the head. Uh, that's back in Panath, we're, we're storing that in a nice dry place until such time as we can uh, have the body made. We're, we're not sure whether the body's going to be made in Bhutan or made here by uh, a Bhutanese woodcarver who's the brother of uh, Sonam Gyaltsen. Uh, he, he wanted to come here for a year to improve his English. So we thought that would be a rather lovely thing that he could maybe come here and make the statue, teach some wood carving skills and uh, make some Garudas to put round the place. Uh... So that would be almost like the one in Chado Lakang, but we're going to um, have him in the body posture of Gurumbache with a Katvanga and a Vajra and Skull Bowl. So, um... We're also not going to paint it, we'll just leave it plain wood and stain the wood red and blue on the robes rather than using paint. So, uh, yes, that, that's rather exciting. That's uh, maybe three years off, I would say, realistically. What's the plan for this wing here behind you? Well, uh, the top section, uh, down to the second door there will be a kitchen and dining hall which is uh, whimsically to be known as the Yak and Yogini basically because we found a photograph of a Tibetan woman riding a yak uh, from old Tibet and that will be the sign of you know, the Yak and Yogini uh, the bottom section, we're not entirely sure yet if we're going to use it for workshops or accommodation. <coughs> I think we'll probably use it for accommodation and have the workshops in the, um, in the riding stable buildings that are off down in that direction. And then right at the end, um, where there's sort of a, a sheep pen or not sure what it is. Is it a sheep pen, pig pen, cow pen, or a pig pen at one time? This is going to be uh, what's called a labrang. A labrang is, uh, I guess, vaguely translates as llama house. Uh, although we might house the occasional alpaca there or. Vacunia. Um, that will be a three-story structure that will go up higher than the main roof there so that whoever's teaching will stay there and it will also be useful for when Dujra Membership comes so that the ground floor will be a kitchen dining room the next level be a living room, the top floor would be a bedroom and bathroom um, so that we can ensconce visiting dignitaries there and that'll be you know separate from the rest of the place 
with maybe a balcony coming off the living room so that Dojimampache can observe the um, lama dances that are going on for you know, Dojipurba. But that's, that's a long way away. <laughs> uh, maybe not in our lives, uh, you know, unless uh, we have some incredibly fascinated billionaires turn up, who knows, but if so, it could happen uh, with a little more alacrity. Yeah. Do you want to walk up that side? Then we can have a look in the Yak and Yogini. Oh, on the end here, um, this, this building is going to be extended by about the width of that tent uh, with the same profile as the entrance lobby to the shrine room so that um, there'll be a gradated track down here for wheelchairs uh, so that it makes it disabled friendly and the entrance will be here for the shrine room and that will be a place to hang coats and um, take off boots and shoes yeah So this is currently the home of our one remaining cockerel. We did inherit and um, a flock of hens and a cockerel from the previous owners of the place. Um, that was one of the conditions of the sale of the property that we would take the hens. But unfortunately, over the years that we've had the place, they've all been taken by foxes. So. So the, uh, this whole area is, is undeveloped. Yeah. Yes, it's been uh, goose housing this uh, room here. Unfortunately, we lost our goose a few days ago to a fox. Ah, oh, here's Mr. Cocky. Hello. <laughs> Hello. Ah, the one remaining chicken. There he is. He's become very friendly since all the others left. He spends all his time with people, so he's... Uh... Yeah. They're amazing birds, aren't they? They're tropical birds, apparently hens. And that comb on top is a remnant of the Jurassic period. It actually relates them to dinosaurs, <laughs> you know, like the Stegosaurus that has that thing on its back. That's that's what that is. So this is currently tool storage up here at the moment. Various lawn mowers in there.
We've had to do an awful lot of um, garden management because when we first came here this wisteria was growing into the roof and had extended down into the room. So there was a whole lot of wisteria that was devoid of leaves because it wasn't getting any light. <laughs> so getting it right under the roof. So in here I'm going to put the light on. This is the temporary kitchen that we installed for our most recent event, which is the largest we've had so far, because obviously the house kitchen wasn't big enough. So um, we have a big fridge, freezer, a big oven, hob, um, and sinks plumbed in here. This was all done in the last two months in preparation for the big ordination retreat, which we've just had. And this is uh, eating space enough for the people who are here. So, I mean, eventually this will be the permanent dining room, but obviously it will be uh, properly renovated and uh, plastered and everything. The tent is here because it keeps it warmer because we have used this in the winter and it's very cold, but the tent, you can have a heater in here and the tent contains some of the heat. <laughs> and we have spare eating space. This marquee was erected for the retreat as well. Spare eating accommodation. And you've ordained four people. Yes, just recently, last. And what's the significance of that? Well, when you become ordained, you become a member of the lineage and you formally take on vows, the 14 root vows. Yeah. And it's something you have to work towards over a number of years. You have to have been an apprentice in this tradition for at least five years. You have to have a, accomplished a retreat requirement, a study requirement. You have to pass an, an ordination examination. And you have to be... Um, you undergo a sort of a training with a Vajra friend who um, is here to answer your questions, um, here to put you on the spot really, to make sure that you really understand what you're doing. Mm -hmm. um, and they have to vouch for you that you're ready to take ordination when it comes time. I suppose the thing with uh, ordination, what we do is slightly unusual because um, Theoretically, when you enter into the practice of Vajrayana, uh, you request someone to be your teacher and then you receive empowerment. Once you've requested someone to be your teacher and they've accepted, that person then becomes your Vajra master. Um, now, that's how it used to work in ancient India. It's how it used to work in the first spread in Tibet. But uh, as the centuries moved on, empowerments came to be given to large numbers of people. <coughs> Originally, it was just you know one-to-one. -one. Now, of course, in the West, uh, you could find yourself having taken an empowerment through having walked past a church hall, 
heard something interesting going on inside, walked through the door, been touched on the head with various objects and told you received empowerment. It could be that uh, obscure. Um, now to suddenly find yourself in Vajra commitment, having accidentally walked into a place, is not really that functional. Uh, we can't really go back to how things were in ancient India or even in the first spread because people are getting empowerments all over the place uh, in every country fairly easily. As time has gone by, uh, the kind of empowerment you can get has uh, evolved and now, I mean, it used to be that wrathful empowerment was difficult to obtain and you had to be very serious now it's everything is becoming easier and easier and uh, although I don't like things to be difficult for people there's obviously a problem around Vajra commitment you know taking a teacher and and having a serious uh, commitment there uh, I don't want to particularly go into the whole question of abuse because I think we've looked at that before but um, what we've done with ordination is that people can study and practice Vajrayana without that level of commitment. So many of our students don't have that Vajra commitment with us. And that only comes in with ordination. So we've tied it to that. Uh, so that if you really want that uh, relationship, then you have to take ordination. And of course, Dujramabhache requested that I established um, this ordination in the West, which is what I've spent my life doing. And so um, there are people now to carry that forward. And for us, it's very important because it establishes um, a lineage of practice that is uh, non-celibate. And it's important that that uh, distinction uh, is obvious to people. So the wearing of robes lets people know that if you want to take practice seriously, you don't necessarily have to go the way of monasticism, that you can be a, uh, a non-celibate, non-monastic practitioner. So uh, we give no encouragement to people to take ordination. It, 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 it all has to come from them. And so the requirements for it are, are, if anything, far more stringent than they would have been in the East. I mean, the examination is a thousand question examination. It, it, it has to be taken over months. So that anyone who takes uh, ordination is, is capable of teaching to a certain degree because they know enough to do that, maybe not in terms of experience, but in terms of factual information. So there's that, there's the uh, retreat commitments and the practice commitments and being vouched for by a Vajra friend of your choice who, who helps you with it if you have problems with it, maybe advises you not to take it or, or whatever. So, so that in brief is how the thing functions. Mm -hmm. And how will those four ordainees' lives change or routines change? Is there any, any change in that way or have they already been 
living the lifestyle yes. of an ordained person. Yeah, there be, should have been. So, <laughs> so ideally, there would be no change because mm -hmm. the, you know they're already there as soon as they start working toward it. Um, obviously, the, the study continues because we emphasize continual study, not simply from books, uh, not simply from us, but from other lamas. We have all kinds of contacts now in Nepal, Bhutan, um, and opportunities for people to study. Uh, for example, uh, I, I think you probably spoke with Sangye about POA. So all our students who've practiced POA go to Jomo Sampal Dechen Rinpoche for the final in insertion of kusha grass into the skulls. So that's all set up in that way and we have other lamas with whom people study and we encourage them to study with any Nyingma lama who visits other lamas also but mainly Nyingma you know because people have limited time and resources so and they may have met these lamas on their pilgrimage because that's also a requirement of ordination that they um, engage in a pilgrimage in the east to go to a country where um, Buddhism is just the norm. It's not something special like it is over here. Mm. So we um, expect them to go on a pilgrimage to ex have that experience. Yeah, because we don't like Vajrayana being an alternative. It's not an alternative religion. It may be that is what it is in a way here, but you know you go out east and it's not an alternative. It, that's just the nature of the religion in that country, and it's really important for people to r recognize that and also to um, experience um, being accepted as normal somewhere. You know, that there's nothing special about what they're doing. You know, uh, I, people are obviously friendly to them there and uh, but you know you know there's no um, status in it in that way you know they're just accepted as, as practitioners mm -hmm. okay. shall we keep going yeah, yeah. I think it's kind of nice. I, I, I really like what uh, they've done here. You know, it's, uh, it's extraordinary. I, I would never have thought of it, you know, putting a tent inside a building, but it's, it's, it's remarkable. And we've, we've all eaten here and um, it's been a little bit chilly, hence, hence the cloak, you know, but uh, it, it works and it's... Um, they actually achieved an immense amount of work to do this because the floor is a dirt floor which they had to level and then cover and then lay that lino. You know even f even getting hold of these c carpet scraps from a carpet shop that was throwing them out you know a lot of research oh. went into it all. And everything's done as cheaply as possible because we just don't have the funds <laughs> at the moment. I mean we will develop it but at the moment it, it just functions which is good. Yeah. I don't like that. So this is the the main farmhouse which 
provides most of the residential accommodation as it is at the moment. Uh, we have um, two, three, four. We have four bedrooms. No, we have five bedrooms with one downstairs, a kitchen and a living room, and two bathrooms. So that's the current uh, accommodation without camping. So it's not not enough for us at the moment. But that we will seek to remedy. Yes, improve upon. So do you want to go into the house? Sure, then? yeah, let's go for it. I'm not sure which is, uh, I suppose that's the front door, although mainly we use this one that goes into the yeah. kitchen. Let's start in the kitchen, shall we? Here's some signs that will appear. Um, this one will be at the entrance when you turn off the main road, but uh, we're not putting it up until we've had the change of use. And when we've done that, we'll take the Pantyporsman sign down and put this one up. Or maybe they'll both be up together for a while so that mm. people can get used to it. So the whole retreat center is owned by the charity Sangnat Turtle. Um, which is a registered charity and they had to change their whole structure and become a new charity that was allowed to own property. So that was another tremendous amount of work that had to be done by the members of the committee before we could even consider purchasing property. So this has such a history, the acquisition of property mm. is such a complicated um, manoeuvre in terms of charitable law. So this is the kitchen, farmhouse kitchen, which we use when we have small groups of apprentices in the mm. winter. We will use this kitchen rather than the temporary one that we've erected for the ordination. So. This will eventually be the library um, with uh, maybe some kind of uh, mezzanine area so we can have uh, books going up to the ceiling we have uh, quite a number of books. They're not all here yet, but there are, uh, eventually there'll be a library of several thousand books here. Especially when we're dead, because they'll get all ours. <laughs> and uh, I, I've been collecting uh, Vajrayana materials since about 1966 uh, and a lot of those well you know, they're not all that fascinating some are ancient travelogues of tibet or whatever but you know all out of print now with some wonderful old pictures we have all the hideously unreadable material from evans wentz and giuseppe tucci and uh, those ancient uh, tibetologists but they're all interesting in their own way, and we've tried to keep up with it, but the number of books, has, uh, they're just not purchasable now. So I, I used to buy everything from all the schools, and then I had to cut back to just Kagyu and Nyingma, and finally just Nyingma, and finally just Dzogchen, because it's not possible to buy everything. Um, 
we have quite a large number of those, uh, art books too. We have some rather wonderful art books. Uh, those are things that have to be purchased immediately. They come out because things just, uh, they only appear for a short while. They don't keep them in print. So we've um, concentrated on trying to preserve books for a library that will be of use in the future. So yes, is this, uh, yeah, we could. Uh, So this is the scullery, all our washing machines, dryer, storage. One downstairs bathroom. Through here there's a, this, this will be a bedroom in the end. Well, at the moment, it's a small part of the library. Yeah. Uh, there are still books in packing cases. This is just all, all that we've unloaded. I see there are one or two copies of Wisdom Eccentrics there. <laughs> I think Jagger uses this as office space uh, at the moment. Oh, this is a, a Chimmy Riggs and Rubbishe up here. This is, uh, it's called the Chimmy Riggs and Rubbishe Library because uh, as well as being a great yogi, he was, he was uh, an astonishing scholar. He, he could actually speak Sanskrit. You know, he was a Sanskrit scholar and uh, was really encouraged study. This is him in our house um, ooh, way back in the early 80s in Diana Street, Cardiff in, in Roth. Yeah. So then this at the moment is a uh, is the cold weather dining room. No. <laughs> And, you know, living room, uh, place where we give interviews to people. I think this will probably turn into two bedrooms. Or one bedroom with uh, bunk beds in it and whatever else. So you're really going to load up on the accommodation? Yes. As much yeah. as we can. Mm -hmm. mm. I suppose there are oh, all kinds of things to say about things that might seem insignificant. Um, we have quite a tradition of um, of connections with our lamas from the past. Um, uh, what Kandradeshan is wearing, this, this white cardigan, is actually far more interesting than what I'm wearing. <laughs> 
because this was given to Kandradechen by Kunzendorj um, Rinpoche and it was the one he wore for many years. So um, when we pop our clogs that will probably have a label on it saying where it came from. It's, uh, So this was erected for the um, ordination because we needed places for shoes, basically. Um, outdoor clothes. So th this will be replaced in the end you know, by a building, an extension of the Shrine Hall with an entrance here with uh, a ramp. Hmm. Have to squeeze past a chair here yeah, in order to get in. So this is uh, partially uh, as it will be. We've painted it as far as we could. Mm -hmm. Painted it during the quarantine. So there were very few of us to paint it, were there? That was a, a labour. We've so. managed to acquire some rather, you know, rather marvellous things. This uh, iron Garuda is um, 17th century. Where did you find that? Oh, it was found for us by our, by our student um, Jennifer on eBay, of all things. It just turned up and she was able to acquire it for uh, an extremely reasonable price so here it is and um, she cleaned it up it was in rather awful condition so when you're here and I know several of your students are here also Metzel, Jaguar and Sanjay mm -hmm. do you use this shrine room for as is sometimes done daily oh, yes. rituals and so on, coming together in the shrine room mm -hmm. each morning and evening or something like this. Yeah. What sort of things occur in here, out of retreat? Well, there's practice every day occurs here. And, uh, and probably uh, when we've had the change of use, it will be also a public venue and members of the public will be able to come in and join in on on the daily practices if they wish. During the pandemic, while there was nobody coming here, Maitzel and Jagger have been um, Zooming the morning practice from here every day. And what, what is the typical, is there such a thing as a typical morning practice in your lineage? Well, it's, uh, it's a combination of silent sitting, which is punctuated by practices of yogic song. And uh, there, in a sense, there, there is no particular morning practice or evening practice. It, it depends largely on the personal practices of the people involved. We do have a group practice which goes through um, uh, Gurumbachim Mantra, Yeshitsogyal Mantra, um, Seven Line Song, Doji you know, Tsikdun, and uh, the Lama Nalja of Machik Labdran, and that 
comprises a practice and it, it can take anything from an hour to three hours depending on the length of the silent sitting. But, uh, so silent sitting punctuates everything we do. Mm -hmm. In the evening there would be protector practice, you know, you know, for those who are practicing that. And that will be uh, fundamentally the Maza Dosum, Ekajati Rahula and Doji Legpa. Uh, your way of doing silent sitting, because it's sort of, there's a reason you call it Shine and not Shamata, isn't it? At least that's the first part of it. Yes, uh, we, we tend to use the Tibetan as much as we can rather than Sanskrit, but the reason we don't call it Shamata is because it's part of the four Naljos, and there are no Sanskrit words really for the last two. So you'd have to start with shamatha, vipassana, nime, uh, and latong. So we use the Tibetan words for them all. Another reason that when you say shamatha, um, it tends to mean a certain kind of silent sitting practice, and those can vary. Uh, when one speaks of shine in terms of the four naljos, it, it's from a Dzogchen perspective, and so the, um, it's formless. There's no concentration on the breath, there's no visualization, it's simply sitting. Uh, then uh, we say laton rather than vipassana because the eyes are open and the approach is very different. You know, uh, I, I think shamatha and shine are actually a lot closer than vipassana and laton because with vipassana it could be a contemplation. This is one style where you find yourself in a state of stable shine where thought is not arising and then you contemplate some aspect of dharma. This is one style of vipassana so it can really vary according to the lineage and traditions. So, so for us it's not helpful to use the Sanskrit words. Uh, for us uh, latong is a finding presence of awareness in the dimension of that which moves in mind. Uh, that which moves in mind, the word for that is namtog. Now, conceptual thought can be, is namtog, but not all namtog is conceptual thought. There can be all kinds of uh, arisings in mind that are pictorial, that are sensational, that, that, that can't really be de described as discursive thought, and yet there's still movement there. So the practice of Latong is to find presence of awareness in the dimension of the movement of Namtok. Uh, so that obviously, that sounds very different from what you may have heard of as Vipassana. But the, this will be you know, from the Dzogchen tradition. So you, we have the four Naljos, uh, which are the Ngondro uh, of Dzogchen Semde. Uh, people often think that the word Ngondro means the 100,000 prostrations, the 100,000 kilka offerings, the 100,000 um, uh, 
Doji Sempa recitations of the hundred syllable mantra and the hundred thousand practices of Lama Nalja or Guru Yoga. But this is actually the tantric nondro. It's so there are other nondros. There's Dzogchen nondro, uh, there's also a nondro for Togal. Um, because nondro means preparation. And so for everything, there's a preparation. You know, right down to eating a meal, there's a preparation. <laughs> you know, for taking a bath, you have to take your clothes off. You know, this is the nondro. Uh, so nondro is that which brings you to the state at which you can practice. So to bath, you have to take your clothes off so you can bath, so that arriving at the state means removing your clothes. That's what that is. So. So with our tradition and with some others, um, uh, you have Dzogchen Semde, which is how you approach Dzogchen. One of the problems is that the lineage of Semde and Longde have been almost entirely lost. And so now all that remains really is Dzogchen Menakde. And you cannot approach Dzogchen Menak Day. It has no Mundro, because the Mundro is there in Semde. So if you've lost that, then you have to approach. Uh, that's Rachel. <laughs> uh, if you. I'll, I'll, I'll turn that off. She'll be ringing to wish you. Uh, where was I? I was somewhere. The same day and long day has been lost. Yes, so uh, because the Nondro for Dzogchen lies within Semde, uh, if Semde is lost, then you have to approach through Tantra, which means you have to have the Kirim, Dzogrim, and you have to go that path, which is why many people will say you have to approach Dzogchen in that way. But that's simply because the Nondro has been lost. Um, but where you have it, uh, the four Naljors are set up to bring you to the base of Dzogchen. So th that's how it exists within our tradition. And is there a condition uh, upon which the, the practitioner goes from Chine to Laton, for instance, from one to the other. Does one have to achieve or attain something or recognize something, or is it an accumulation of time? Or No, um, you can go into Laton as soon as you've stabilized Chine. So there's no, uh, you know, it, it, it doesn't work like uh, repetitions or time. It, it's actually experiential. So when you've arrived at the state where no thought is arising, uh, and you've stabilized that, which means that it's not just a few moments every time you sit. You know, it, it, uh, what that would mean is that you, uh, you can remain in that state of no thought arising for at least 10 minutes, I would say. Uh, th that would equate to s stable shine. Uh, probably um, in old Tibet, it will be longer, but I think for us, <laughs> Uh, with um, a scattered mentality, I think 10 minutes probably equates to an hour. Um, so 
Oh, I know what I was going to say. Menakde. Uh, Menak means no word. So where there's no word, there's simply the practice, the transmission for practice, where the meaning is incipient in the practice instruction. There's nothing else to say, so it's impossible to go straight into that. Whereas with Dzogchen Semde, there's a great deal of information about the nature of mind. Semde is the series that, that has uh, the most information in it. So that's where one would begin. And then with Shine, you arrive at the state where thought is not arising. You then uh, open the eyes. Uh, the posture is uh, with the hands in this position. The head is slightly downwards. The eyes are looking about a foot in front of the knees and the eyelids are hanging. It's often said the eyes are half open or half closed, but that you can't actually do that. If you try to half close your eyes, you'll find that they flicker. It's impossible to keep the eyes like that. So the idea of having the eyelids hanging is that there is a little light entering the eyes. And that is simply to keep you awake. You could close them. If you don't go to sleep, if you don't become drowsy, then there's maybe no need to have light entering the eyes. But for most people, it's helpful to have some light entering the eyes. So then when you move into Latong, there's a change of posture. The hands go to the knees. Uh, the head looks forwards and the eyes open slightly wide. So that's quite useful, but that's not the only method. The more common method is to combine uh, Shine and Latong. This is where you sit straight away with the eyes wide open. And stable Shine is regarded there as being undisturbed by thought. Thought is there, but you don't follow it. Um, many people find that easier because they find it very hard to arrive at the state where there is no thought. Um, but there's a problem with that, that if you go that way, then the transition into Latong is more difficult. So uh, whichever way you approach it, there's a difficulty. With the uh, Aroter Semdengondro, the difficulty is at the start in letting go of thought and arriving at a point where thought is not arising. Uh, but then the practice of Latong is, is much easier. You, you simply change posture and find presence of awareness in the movement of that which arises. If you go the other way with the eyes open at the start, there's no change of posture and you simply have to segue into that, which is then more difficult. So uh, there are advantages and disadvantages to both. And our students practice both. Uh, if someone's been struggling for years to arrive at a state or where thought is not arising and they just can't do it, then we put them onto the other method. The other method is one that's uh, I believe is taught by Namkai Nobu Rinpoche. 
so uh, and that is actually the more common method of chine uh, and laton so amazing things that are here <laughs> these uh, five tamjin purbas that are in the triangular base uh, these were made by Akyong Duraldoje, who was a disciple of Kyungchen Aralingma. And these turned up individually over a number of years uh, in various uh, shops in Boda. And we were very lucky to find them. Um, they were in a bad state of repair. We had to and boil them for hours to get rid of the chemical inside them that was uh, making them verdigree. The verdigree was just coming through the metal. But um, So uh, those are there as a lineage treasure. Uh, we have all sorts of other purbas uh, that have come down to us from various different lamas. Uh, at the moment, as I say, it's all rather ad hoc and things sit all over the place but eventually they'll all be in shrine cabinets. Uh, this is vaguely a sort of a protector plus purba shrine. Up here we have uh, a statue of Damchan uh, Gawangapo uh, uh, who's the, the Vajra blacksmith riding the goat. So in our tradition, uh, he's a uh, he's a manifestation of Dojilekpa. In other traditions, he's a minion of Dojilekpa. Next to him is Zarahula. We don't have a statue of Ekajati yet, but those are on order at, at the m moment from Boda. Um, up here we've got various lamas of the tradition. On top, uh, not really filmable, is Gurumbache. They're backlit, so you won't see much. There's Gurumbache and Yeshitsogyal. And let's just remove this thing. Uh, on the top row is Kunzangdo Gurumbache. This is a statue that we commissioned. Then there's Kyungchen Arulingma, who's the origin of the Arutea. And then there's Dujumlingpa, because we have a very close association with the Dujumtea, even though we don't uh, practice it. We, we have a, a very close connection with that line and with the lamas of that line. And next coming down is in the middle, there's Aroyeshi, who's uh, my predecessor. He was killed in an avalanche, so although I say he's my predecessor, I don't have that great a deal of memory of it. Um, on the right, or on his left, is Ayekandro. Jomo Aye Kandro, who's uh, Kandro Dechen's predecessor. And on the left, on his right, is uh, Ashi Kandro. Uh, Aye Kandro and Ashi Kandro were sisters, and they were the Sangyums of Aroyashi.
Are these the same statues that we filmed at your home shrine? Yes. Are they, they've been moved here, haven't they? Uh, no, no. The, this is another set. Well, I, I think that there must be about a dozen sets of these three in the world, uh, in different <coughs> places. Then the various other uh, lineage lamas here. Um, there's one of Dutra Rinpoche, one of Dilgo Khyentse Rinpoche, one of the Kamapa. Um, One of the most amazing things we have actually, these appliques. These were made by uh, our student Nima in Switzerland. Uh, she studied uh, the Tibetan art of applique. And so she's learned all the uh, specifics of how to make them. These are rather unusual because usually uh, appliques are uh, a three or 400 foot long and, and hung down the fronts of gompas. Uh, so it's unusual to have them this size. And uh, we've had uh, some very nice reactions from Himalayan lamas to these who are sort of vaguely surprised by them because they've never seen them this size before. And of course, because they're this size, they're partially three-dimensional. So aspects like the earrings, uh, they have actual conch earrings. Uh, and Kunzangoja uh, Rinpoche here, if you get close enough, you'll see has got actual rings on his fingers, uh, or they're partial rings. But um, uh, one of the nice things about this is all, all these lines are horsehair that have been wound with thread, which is a particular uh, Tibetan device in um, applique. So this is Kunzang Doge Rinpoche and this is Jomu uh, Sampal Dechen Rinpoche. This was the first one we ever made. This is not made in, in Tibetan style at all because uh, none of us knew how to do that at the time. And we were, at the time, having, having um, camping retreats in Penant Valley with Shivam O'Brien, if you've heard of him, Irish storyteller. You might like to talk to him, actually. Very interesting man. He tells stories and gives shamanic workshops and whatever, but um, he used to let us use his place for retreats. And um, the idea of this initially was to have uh, in our outdoor practices, uh, I had it in mind that we would use this outside, um, erected like a tent, you know, with um, uh, uh, dowels in it, you know, your guy ropes. But it's never been used for that purpose. Um, and so having made that, then the next one that was made was this Yeshitsogyal at the end. And this again wasn't made uh, in a traditional way. You'll see if you look at it closely that how we've actually organized the folds of the robes is that we've simply <laughs> You know, you know, doubled up the material and stitched it down. 
um, which uh, makes it quite thick. Uh, these were machine embroidered in, in Kathmandu. There was an original face there that was horrible, but we replaced it. Then the Yishid Sogyal was made. Uh, uh, the first one that came near the Tibetan method was this one here, and Nima worked on this one, but that was before she had the training in um, Tibetan applique. This is Lingesa. And at the moment, Nima is working on a large applique of Dojipurba that is going to go here eventually. And the two of Kunza Dojipurba and Jomo Sampel will go up behind the, um, where we sit at the end there. And then each one will have a flying shelf coming out of it, which is uh, um, something of an innovation of mine is we'll make two little holes in each of the tankas and embroider around them and then there'll be a glass sh shelf that will go into the wall a flying shelf you know without supports it'll just have rods going into it and then there'll be a statue of Jomo Sampel on her statue of Kunzang Dojrimpoche on his on each of the appliques there'll be a statue and that's basically to um make better use of the space because although it's quite a nice large space it's not actually large enough for what we want to put into it so we have to um, double up on things this one will have the two um, statues on horseback in front of it uh, along with um, Chögyam Trungpa Rinpoche's painting of Lingesa then there'll be a picture of um, Trungpa Rinpoche on horseback that's a sort of a Photoshop painting of mine. That'll go up there too with a picture of Trungpa Rinpoche and Kunzang Dorje Rinpoche and the various lamas who are connected with Lingesa. So that'll, there'll be a saddle in front of it, a Tibetan saddle on a stand with saddle blankets on it and um, various things that are connected with horse riding such as uh, so my old spurs that I used to use in Montana. I got this as a present from an old cub boy called Eldon. So um, having used them in Montana, they, um, oh, this is the stirrup. This was made by Guangdrup in Switzerland. This is not old, but it's, it's, a, it's a newly made stirrup. These will hang from the saddle. These Garuda heads here are temporary. They're going to be made in bone eventually, but... And what's behind this uh, care and attention to detail and specificity of these various objects that you're showing? Um, Terminal obsession. <laughs> um, this is really um, the attention to detail. Yes, it's very important. It's um, 
this is the creation of an environment, an environment that holds the lineage that can be inspiring to people in the future, uh, people in the present also, but um, it's being developed as a symbol of the lineage, so it will contain all the many different aspects of the lineage, so that anyone entering this place will get a sense of the lineage. So our shrine hall will look different from other shrine halls of, of other lineages. It's got many parts to it really. The um, stripes on the walls, for example, are stripes. Uh, uh, this color scheme was devised by Dujan Rinpoche's tanka painter, Ergin Topgyal, who, who came to the West with him. And it was painted in London at Dujan Rinpoche's center, Ergin Schirling. It was also painted in his Paris center. Uh, both centers were appropriated. I won't go into that. Um, and they vanished. And now we're the only ones who keep up this um, color scheme. I asked Namgi Dawa Rinpoche about it. He's the son of Shempen Dawa Rinpoche, who was the, uh, who was the other son of Dujan Rinpoche. And I said, have you ever seen these, this pattern? He said, no, I've never seen this. And we've asked various Dujan Lamas if they've ever seen this pattern before. And no one's ever seen it. So it seems only to have existed in London and Paris. We have photographs of those old shrines, or, or, or at least of the London shrine room, but um, nowhere else. So uh, we've maintained that, and it's always been, um, uh, you know, it's, it's been one of those things you can actually just paint a room with these colors and have nothing else in it, and it functions. That it, it, it has a quality and ambience. Um, at the moment, this shrine room is rather cluttered. It won't end up looking cluttered uh, once the um, shrine cabinets go in. It'll appear far more simple. Yeah. And is it part of the practice for your students also to care for or attend to sacred objects? Um, for example, would they begin a collection of items like this, their own personal collection, or uh, is that something that extends as a teaching method, I suppose, to your students? Yes, well, everyone who can, everyone who has a, a house with a spare room will probably create a shrine room, and they will evolve them as, uh, you know, as far as their enthusiasm takes them. Uh, we have an amazing uh, number of craftspeople in our lineage, and so um, people are making things all, all the time, uh, you know, for their own shrines and for the shrine here. It carries through into the whole of your life, though, really, the attention to detail, doesn't it? Because if you're creating anything in your life, um, I mean, we hold that anybody can be an artist in whatever field. It doesn't have to be a mm. uh, field of painting, music. Um, whatever you're doing is an art form, a creative process. And you can only really um, 
create beauty if you have that sense of attention to detail, to do your utmost, to, to make it how you want it, and to go out of your way. And you follow a path, mm. you go, just go further and further down the path, you might not even have an idea of what that path's going to be in the beginning, how detailed it's going to be, or what might lead to what, but it's just natural, mm. natural obsession. Mm. <laughs> and that, we know, use that as a positive yeah. term. And that, you know, that extends to one's relationship with other human beings, attention to detail, uh, that one's aware of other people as, uh, uh, as ongoing artistic projects in themselves. And so one you know, pays attention to how other people dress, how, how one communicates with them in terms of their appearance and what arrangement one, one makes with other people. Uh, you know, the obsession with detail goes into uh, caring for other people. We once had a, uh, I remember Yeshi's 50th birthday in New York, where someone had the idea that we'd all come dressed as Yeshe, including the men. Uh, so we all had curly wigs and we all had um, uh, various balloons up our jumpers and it was, it was hysterical, it was very funny. And, um, and she really appreciated it, you know, the amount of trouble everyone went to to look like Yeshe, you know, it was, it was, it was very funny. That was just a symbol of their affection for her. And uh, it particularly applies in romantic relationship, attention to detail, because if you let things slide, um, then your relationship degenerates into um, sort of an everyday existence together, rather than being um, upright and vibrant and mm. happy, yeah. happy thing, which extends into the future and for the sake of your children. You're buying a birthday present for somebody. Uh, uh, there's a lot more involved than simply buying something. It's knowing about the person. Mm -hmm. If you want to purchase something that someone will appreciate, it doesn't have to be expensive, yeah. but, but if, if it's, um, if it depicts your knowledge of the person, then that is the greater part of the present. That's, that's, that's very important. Being a, a Dzogchen tradition, um, uh, Dzogchen practice uh, almost always goes hand in hand with wrathful practice. And so this here is the nascent protector shrine. It's also you know, mixed up with purbas and other things, but uh, eventually it will um, be slightly more simple than this. There's an anvil there with a chain and a hammer and a goat's horn. Uh, this is because these are connected with um, Damchan Ngojin Barwa Mezer, whose uh, picture you see up, up here. And you'll see he has a bellows. Uh, uh, the bellows are currently missing there in Sweden, being refurbished. We, we got hold of an ancient set of bellows from the early 19th century, which uh, 
were almost irreparable and uh, our student Drugzal has been lavishing care on them for over a year now and has got them working again and uh, in a state of repair and they'll be part of this so you can see that uh, Barromese is holding a chain and there's a chain here he has a hammer in his hand which is uh, like Whoops. Actually, there was no need to pick that one up. There being one here. This is the hammer of uh, Dojilegpa. This is interesting in itself because um, uh, on the advice of Dujra Membache, we were looking at the connections between Doji Legpa and Thor. So we thought, well, if, um, if there's to be a hammer here, it needs to be somewhat reflective of that. And we had to go into a lot of research because if you, if, you, if you Google Thor's hammer, you get what you get in the comics. Uh, you know. If you look a bit further, you can get Victorian illustrations where they're covered with filigree and are obviously not a thing a blacksmith would ever use. Um, so we weren't really finding what we wanted to find. And then one of our students was in Helsinki Museum and found uh, as part of an exhibit um, roughly 20 Stone Age hammerheads that are exactly this shape. So we took pictures and we just had this made. I mean, the original uh, hammerheads were stone. This is uh, iron, but, um, but it's a remarkable shape. It reminded me immediately of something from a science fiction movie, you know, the alien spacecraft. And you think, you know, this for a Stone Age shape, you know, it's got an undercut here, which is, I, I don't know why they should have made it with this undercut. And it's a beautiful object. And you think, well, you know, this was just a tool. You know, why is it such a streamlined shape? It's amazing. But uh, so as soon as we saw it, we thought, this is the hammerhead, you know, this is it. So. Um, we um, gave one to Tukudakpa, who, who's a Nimalam in Finland. He loves it. You know, he really likes this shape too. So it, it obviously works uh, for more than us. And it's got the um, nine-pronged Vajra terminal on the end that uh, is typical of the ones we use. It's a wrathful nine-prong. It has a little skull at the base of each prong. So we've made a lot of these things ourselves. This, um, this style of uh, Vajra goes back to the first spread. I found a set in Boda back in 1990, and they were going for $7,000. And 
it, it was a sad day. I, I was looking at them thinking, you know, there's no way I can even think about this. So I said to the gentleman, um, would you mind if I drew these? He said, oh, sure, you can draw them. And, and so I said, I'll, I'll go and fetch some pencil and paper or whatever. He said, no, you can take them away with you. Oh, it's just lovely that somebody trusted me with that. Uh, so I took them back to the hotel room, I drew them, and eventually we had them made, you know, the bell and the, the Vajra in this old style. So, so this is highly unusual now, but most of our students have got uh, bells and Vajras now in that old style. And then, generally, there are all sorts of weapons here. Uh, the, the extremely ancient and rare Tibetan air gun. <laughs> <laughs> so it's basically just anything that anybody has that they can be. Uh, weapons are there. The weapons um, destroy aggression, obsession, and indifference. Do you, uh, when you, uh, in your tradition, your lineage, do you do things like prostrating when you enter the shrine room and other sorts of uh, activities like that? Uh, no, we don't do that. We, uh, we do engage in prostration if there's an empowerment. And all our students are taught how to perform prostrations, what the visualization is, so that when they go to the East, they can perform prostrations. But we tend to not go into those outer forms quite as much. Um, we have the water offering bowls, and we have all the other traditional things, but we don't use them every day. So a lot of those outer forms of practice we use uh, on occasions such as the ordination. For an ordination retreat or, or, any group, or any group retreat, then we use the water offerings, you know, as, as, as well as the uh, milk and tea offerings and all the different. So, so we maintain those, but they're not used on an everyday basis. Happy birthday. Thank you very much. <laughs> 70. Yeah. What a thing. <laughs> so happy coincidence that I'm here on your birthday. Oh, indeed. Well, you're most welcome. Thank you. Yeah. Do you have any birthday reflections? Not really, no, <laughs> apart from the fact that it doesn't seem much different to being 50, it's, uh, which is good news for some, of course, who are younger. But um, uh, yes, one doesn't imagine one's ever going to get to that age but mm -hmm. uh, I, I suppose time's running out though that's that's one thing that occurs to me in terms of the many things there are to do and I'm aware that well maybe I've got 20 years perhaps so then I look back at the last 20 years and think well <laughs> maybe I should have done more then yeah so, so that's always there but um, other than that it uh, feels fine yeah, well, 70 suits you. Mm. It's, I, I, I actually never thought we'd ever get a center. 
that that seemed impossible at one time. I mean, when I was first teaching, uh, we used to call ourselves the the Tibetan Tantric Periphery because we didn't have a center. So it's a, and so so we established everything around not having a center. And for a while it it worked, uh, but then the prices of venues rose sharply and it become it became an incredible drain having to pay places to ha- hold retreats there and uh, an incredible amount of labor went into um, making the place you know look a little bit like a retreat center for the time we were there which meant schlepping an inordinate number of suitcases around and Drala John what's behind that name well, Drala is the practice of relating to the natural world. Uh, Drala is the sentience of everything. Uh, there are different views on that. Uh, some Buddhist lineages uh, hold that there's a difference between sentience and non-sentience. Uh, in terms of Dzogchen, uh, particularly in our lineage, there's a teaching of the nine skies, which would get a little bit technical to describe, but, you know, in terms of uh, Nirmanaka, Sambhogaka, uh, Dhammakaya, and then Dhammakaya, Dhammadhatu, and Dhammata, if you know those terms. Um, if you imagine those in a grid of nine boxes, three up the side, three along the top, that leaves another four spaces. And those spaces are filled with, uh, as you, you know, Dhammata is the emptiness of everything. So that includes um, sentience and apparent non-sentience. Those are the four boxes then are areas of apparent non-sentience that are actually sentient. So from that point of view, everything is sentient. So Drala, which is spelt in different ways according to um, tradition. We know three different spellings. Ours is Zgrabla, if we were to spell it out, S-G-R-A. The Drala that Chagam Trungpa Rinpoche talked about was instead of S-Gra, it was D-Gra, which has the meaning of, of warrior. Uh, so it has a slightly different meaning, but um, when he talks about it, there's a lot of overlap. And then a tongue Rinpoche in Bhutan ha- has a third spelling, which is halfway between ours and, and Trungpa Rinpoche's. The, uh, the, the Drala that Trungpa Rinpoche talks about is the most common spelling. But, so Drala involves being out in nature, although it could be anywhere. You know, it's not that a city is devoid of Drala, it's just more easily accessible through the natural world. So, Kunzang Dojo Rinpoche, we asked him to name our center, and he basically said, no, you should name it. So, I named it, and, and he said, good. That's a good name, and so that was it. Uh, Jong means valley, so the valley of Drala, and this is a valley, so it's uh, it, it worked quite well. Is also 
uh, m more pronounceable than many Tibetan names. Mm -hmm. And we wanted it to be in Wales, didn't we? Because we mm -hmm. live in Wales. We've lived in Wales all our, all our adult lives, although we don't live here. Um, and the Welsh countryside lends itself to these sort of practices. And it was really the, the fact that this beautiful courtyard and farmhouse is nestled into um, the land as we have it. And it's fairly, it's an interesting mix of land, which you'll see when we take you round. It's, you know, we have the pasture, which is relatively flat, mm. and we're sort of nestled halfway down a hill. And then we have this woodland, which is uh, fairly steep and a little bit wild, and it has pathways through it. Um, so it really lends itself to our particular style of practice. Mm. Most, <laughs> the majority of Dzogchen practices are better practiced outside. So we think of the land around Ralajong as being the outside shrine room, the outer shrine room, and then there's also the inner shrine room. So the land is, is you know, from the perspective of Drala, is, is, um, it's realized phenomena in the same way that we are. The doctrine view, we are beginninglessly realized, so is the land beginningly pure. Um, so I think it was the land plus the mm. whole building, the way that they worked together, that really sold us on this place. Although it's currently smaller than we would wish. <laughs> we, we, we need more residential accommodation to hold larger retreats when the weather is not so clement for camping. Yes, well you just had 40 people or so here for your birth birthday, didn't you? Well, um, for the celebration, yeah. yeah. Uh, I mean, for, for the ordination, yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. And then that they just ran into the birthday. And that's a lot of camping? It is, yeah. yeah. So what do you mean when you say that the Wales is, the land of Wales is particularly conducive for these sorts of practices? Um, well, it is primarily a rural, um, it's a beautiful country because it has so much variation. Um, I mean, here it's quite undulating. Um, so you get, the, you, you get a different view from every aspect, you get You've got, we've got the horizon in different places all the time. And we're also actually quite close to the sea. We're 20 minutes drive mm. from the sea. So there are many practices that we can um, engage in that involve gazing at the ocean and gazing at the sky. Um, and Wales is near to where we, I mean, we live in Wales. So um, we have a Sangha that spread throughout uh, the world really, America, Scandinavia and Europe. Um, so ideally we would have a centre in every place where we have a group of students, but obviously that's ridiculously impractical. So we wanted a centre in that was close enough to us that we could drive here easily and Wales lends itself because we live here. Yeah, and other particular places around here that are good for certain practices. On Dralajong, I mean, this is a good place for Shine, or this is the place for sky gazing. Do you have those kind of locations already staked out? 
No, I think that would be for individuals to find those places themselves because um, the practice of Drala is quite personal to you. It's your own personal perception in relation to your surroundings. So to designate certain areas as good for this and good for that, that wouldn't really function. I, one of the wonderful things, of course, for Dralla here is, is, is we have a, a particular part of the woodland that's 500 years old, hasn't been touched, you know, and so that's, that's really rather remarkable in itself, you know. Uh, that is unusual, actually. Yes, it is designated as ancient woodland, which means it's been... Uh, it's had trees growing on it since the 1600s. So, and, and the trees show particular aspects of that, like they have the epiphytes growing on them, the oak trees. And there are certain plants um, that uh, are signs that it was an ancient woodland. Mm. We've had a, a survey of the land done by the Woodland Trust in Wales. Um, they've divided the area up into, um, and they've particularly designated this particular part as ancient woodland. And that's very much under threat everywhere in the whole of um, the UK, and particularly in Wales. There's a lot of pressure on these areas of land, so... Um, For development. Yes, yes, so we um, particularly want to... Um, I mean, we're visitors to this land, we're only here transiently, we want to establish it for the people in the future. I mean, we're planting trees now, they're not really for us, because we won't yeah. see them <laughs> come to fruition. The oaks that we plant, we won't see them, you know, in hundreds of years. So it's, it's um, we want to do our best for the land whilst we are transiently here, mm. and increase the biodiversity with, in view of the, um, the climate challenges that we're facing. Currently, yeah. and you yourselves don't live here, but Metzel, Wangmo, and Jagir Dorje do. And who are they? They're our students. Um, they also have their own students, um, but they were at a point in life where, uh, well, they had to move uh, because their house had to be sold because Metzel's mother had died, and the house had to be shared between her and her sister and so um, they had to leave that house then when her mother died and so you know th this was available then because we needed caretakers so they moved here uh, which is very nice because it's uh, you know everything works out very well in that way I mean it's not being massively comfortable for them because uh, you know uh, the place is being worked on and will continue to be worked on and they're a little cramped at the moment but um, when we start working on the place it'll, it'll improve for them. But they've been extremely cheerful about it. Mm. How long have they been your students? Ooh. Um. Ooh, Jagger's just had his, is it 50th birthday and we've known him since he was 18. Yeah. <laughs> Mates are not quite so long as that, no. but maybe... But last century, anyway, <laughs> sometimes. <laughs> They've also had to deal with, you know, when you move into a new place, uh, this place is quite complicated. It has the solar heating panels. It has water from a spring um, via a purifier. When you live rurally, you often get power cuts, and we've also been subject to flooding 
because of the nature of the watercourse through the property. So they've had to deal with all of that very much on their own because during the pandemic, nobody could come here really. So they had some very uncomfortable episodes while they were up all night trying to keep the storm drain. We have some film footage of Jaguar scooping out stuff from the stream to stop this whole area flooding at about two in the morning, you know, so that. So they've had some adventures here. Well, we've all had some adventures here. You could have a pair of slippers if you want. Oh, you're following me now here to our part of the house. Where Metzal is probably preparing. My love, yeah. we're coming in now into a bit of the house. Me and Steve. Oh, are you? Yes. I think he is coming in here. Most welcome. This is your accommodation. This is our accommodation, yes, indeed. You're quite a bibliophile when it comes to yeah, nice. uh, these topics. Are these your books? Yes, these are our personal Yes, this is our uh, sort of, uh, there's the library in the house, obviously, but um, these are our, uh, we had these, uh, we had this when we lived at um, Jari and Tuckmolin before we moved here, and um, it keeps getting bigger, as libraries do. But we also, we do lend them out to people too. Although they don't always come back when you do that. Book of Borrowing. <laughs> yeah, we had the Book of Borrowing. Um, so yeah, when we moved, we moved from uh, a very big, well, yes, compared to this, a very big house in Gloucestershire um, that I'd been living in with my, that I bought with my parents. Um, and after they died, we sold that. And so we moved from that to here. So we had to, um, we went from having a lot of space to f fit things into mm. two rooms, really. So we've had to go for the library in the hallway. Mm -hmm. And we might extend it a little bit as well. Yeah, it's, it's gonna keep hard. going up, yeah. yeah. Along with the cobwebs. This is good. This is our bedroom. Sure, everyone wants to see that, but um, <laughs> and again, there wasn't a lot of. We had to kind of go up the wall with shelving. We don't have a lot of storage, so. It's um, a nice photo. That was in Bhutan, actually. One of the um, one of the pilgrims took that. In fact, in Bumtang. I remember it well, one breakfast. And then we have, I don't know if we go this way first, we have, uh, uh, obviously this is straight through into the shrine room, shrine hall, um, but it's the kitchen we use at the moment. This is my office. This is where you see me sometimes sitting. And this is our bathroom. Um, and then we have a, a living room, which also, uh, when we have retreats, sometimes people stay in to um, So this is our living room, which has a nice view out onto the old vegetable garden. You can see it's got a bit of a 
tiger leopard theme. Yeah. There's definitely a tiger theme. Yeah. That's Metzel's favourite. I've always loved tigers since I was very young and in fact I've got quite a few pictures that I still have that I had from when I was maybe 10 or 11 or something of tigers. It wasn't until I was much older that I found out I was born in the year of the tiger as well in the Chinese and Tibetan. Um, Which element? Hmm? Which element? Uh, wood I am. so which is what this year is, of course. So I'm 60 this year, it's my um, wood tiger year. Mm -hmm. I'm curious actually about your... Sorry, water tiger, not wood. Yeah. I was just thinking about wood with something else. Water tiger. Your... Fire. Fire tiger, aren't you? That's it, that's why I was thinking about wood. Yeah, no, it's water tiger. Yes, curious about... Your, you know, what it's been like here and you moved here, what, three years ago? Yeah, 2019, yeah. in the yeah. autumn. Yeah. Two, two and a half, nearly three. Well, it was very peaceful during the lockdown, because lockdown <laughs> happened almost straight away, or like after three months. Yeah. And then we were very kind of fortunate to stay in a place like this during that time. Yeah, so we yeah. thought we would, you know, we would be inundated with other sangha and people as soon as we moved here, but actually from that uh, February, from the low star of that year, then we didn't have anyone here really for most of a year. Yeah. For a year and a half, so yeah, a year and a half. Really, yeah, it was beautiful. I didn't go out, I didn't leave Drala Jong actually for nine months yeah. or something, did I? Jaggy did. So yeah, it was beautiful. It's a very nice place to be. It's uh, endless uh, work to do, of course. So that's the, um, we're always, looking around and thinking, I can't sit down really because I've got to do that. So there's always lots to do. But, um, you know, there's always lots to do anyhow. Yeah. Even if we weren't here, there'd be other things. Do you have a, a daily routine of some sort? I'm wondering if you have a formal, for example, practice period and then you work from certain hours or so. Do you have some sort of routine like that? Yeah, we do. We, we have a slightly variable routine because I'm, I'm also going to, to Bristol to Araling to teach there in the week. And so, but when we're here, uh, we're not, um, we haven't got people staying or we haven't got to go somewhere else. Then we usually try and do, uh, most often we have three or four practice sessions during the day, so usually one first thing in the morning. Um, and there's always one last thing at night. And then what happens in the bit in between varies depending on what else we've got to do. But when we can, we do. So we try and put in days of retreat, a more solitary retreat where we would have practice all day. Um, but it's all practice anyhow. So, you know, whether we're uh, streaming the estate or um, mending the roof or doing whatever, it's all practice. Mm -hmm. And when you're doing the formal practice, what does that consist of? Um, yeah, that varies as well, depending on, for both of us, on what we're practicing. And always silent sitting. So always uh, for now dual practice. But then we have... Uh, many practices that are very easy to engage with outdoors. So um, 
So you have we also have the kind of usual tantric practices, you know, mantra practice, visualizations, and also different uh, different ritual practices like smoke mountain smoke offering, sang offering, and also on special days we do tsokolo here in the shrine room, and then also the online. It's, that's led by Nakshon Rinpoche and Kandodetsu online, and we can take part in the, in the shrine room here. And that's... Do you have any favourite spaces outside to do your practices? Yes, we both have yeah. a few. There's a few, not yeah. just one, but yeah, there's a few which we'll show you this afternoon. Yeah, yeah there's some great places. Um, kind of depending a bit on what practice you're feeling like, because there are some that have got water there, mm. great with some of the Semizin practices mm. involve listening to streams or... Mm and um, there is a place that's really good for sky gazing. It's all good for sky gazing, but there's a bit at the top of the field where you've got a really great view. Um, and also because we have the woods and the fields, it's nice to go out also and practice this chud in the evenings or at night. In the woods. So that's in the woods, that's good as well. Cool. Were any of your students ordained in this recent ordination retreat there were four of them weren't there in total were any of those yours yes two two of them actually yes Rangba and Puntsok and then the other two were a, a couple uh, they were Miro and Iza now Rinzin and Drudul um, and they're Rinpoche and Kandidate and the students are the couple so the, the two the two men were um, our students how long have they been studying with you? Um, Around seven years. Yes, actually, still quite quick. I mean, we've yeah. got we've got students that have been studying with us a lot longer, but um, both of these two were uh, very keen and enthusiastic and fulfilled all the ordination requirements, requirements and have been working really hard the last uh, three or four years to pass all their exams mm -hmm. and fulfil the mantra. Um, practice requirements and uh, yeah so they were uh, I don't know what's driving them to be so keen I think uh, Puntsog has been a practitioner in other traditions for his um, I think it's about 62 mm. as well isn't he? but he's been a, practi a Buddhist practitioner in other traditions for since uh, his early 20s I think so he's He's had a lot of practice um, experience, so I think when he when he arrived in the Arotair and just felt completely at home, I think he was very clear he was going to go for it very quickly. He really wanted to do that. And uh, Rangbar is uh, young and enthusiastic mm. and also has, he's done a lot of physical practices elsewhere, so he's done a lot of martial, martial art arts, and, yes. um, and Zen practice before. Um, so equally he was someone who, um, once he decided that mm. this was where he wanted to continue with practice, he's gone really quickly with all the commitments. Mm. And it's nice be because done. one of them, uh, Punso, he took coordination as a Nakpa and Rangba took coordination as a Naljorpa which is more or less the same ordination, but the robes are, looks a little bit different. And they tend to f also focus on different practices, like the Nakpas tend to focus more on 
both on silent sitting but all on more on mat mantra and tantric practices and rituals while the uh, Naljorpas tends to focus more on physical exercises the yogas yeah. but actually then there's someone like Nakmasange who's main practices the physical practices and she's a nakma so it confuses things yeah. um but yeah that's really nice that with one of each because um the, the whole the whole point of having those two streams of ordination is just to keep them going really like the whole point of why we wear a lot of the things we wear and do a lot of the things we do is to keep those traditions mm. It goes extant back. and visible. Really. It goes back to this commitment that I think you've talked to Naksha Rinpoche and Kenrodechen about before, to Dudu Rinpoche and Kungsandor Rinpoche, to keep the Goka Changlode alive in the West. So it's nice to kind of keep that tradition, grow it and grow it. Do you know, uh, in, in respect to those two ordinations, mm -hmm. did they both come through Kungsandor Rinpoche? No, they actually come, uh, well, from within the Aratar, but Kunshana Rolingma, who was the received Aratar, she had two disciples who held both those, uh, the Nakba ordination and the Naljorma ordination. And uh, Kunshana Rolingma, she was not, she was a Gokha Changlade, she wore long hair and a white skirt, but she hadn't taken those particular vows because she was a Tsogshun Yogini. And then you don't really take those vows. So she asked those two disciples to uh, make those ordinations available for all uh, for the other practitioners within the Arugar, where they used to stay. And she also then adapted the robes slightly. But it's the uh, you can see maybe not so good on this picture, but she's wearing the Nakma Nakba robes. It's always going to be a, yeah. usually a red. Yeah, and I'm wearing a blue blue top. We can take some nice pictures to show that. we fall um, often, so yeah. But Rinpoche took uh, the ordination that he was given was the Nakpa. So he was Nakpa Chogyam. That was from Dujan Rinpoche. Cool. Thank you. Thank you. And Kandrodechen, she is Naljorma. So it's nice. It's nice that they both. They have both, and when they give it, that's very nice. One day the phone went, and it was Chimurushan Brashe said, um, I'm, I'm having a picnic on this date, I want you to make good weather. I said to him, I'm not a weather maker. Oh, yeah, yeah, you say this and that. And, and I said, but anyway, you, are you making good weather? <laughs> so the day came and I uh, spent the day practicing. I thought that's about all I can do. Um, I did some practice with the elements. I had nothing to do with weather making at all. And I, I thought, well, I can't do anything else. I never learned that. So, um, so then it's all forgotten. He doesn't get back to me as to whether it rained or not. And um, I thought, well, I'm not going to inquire. He'll either <laughs> let me know or he won't. So 
Then I'm with him in Frankfurt. Uh, I just happened to be passing through on my way back from Austria. And I knew he'd be there, so I, I, I stopped in on him because my mother was also there at the time. And so I visited some relatives, visited with him. And then the lady who ran the Frankfurt Ring wanted me to be with him to interpret, not translate what he was saying, but to put it into a, a form that people could understand. Uh, so uh, I was there with him and uh, he wanted me to sing Seven Line Song. And so I did, I used the chudram on that occasion. He'd not heard that version before. And so he said, where is this coming from? And uh, I made the mistake of um, wanting to gloss over the fact that it was from the Terma because I didn't really want to get into all that on that occasion. I mean, he knew about it anyway, but uh, so I just, oh, it came to me, Rimpshire. <laughs> <laughs> and so I said, me, he says, he, I, big I, big ego, you know, me. And <laughs> so he then got the entire audience, I don't know how many there were, I, uh, over 100 people. And people had to vote on whether Nakhachogam had big ego or not. And some thought yes, some thought no, some said they didn't know why they were being asked and what did this have to do with Tibetan medicine anyway. And um, um, one fellow said that they thought it was disgraceful that I was being humiliated in this way and what did I feel about it. And I said, is my teacher. If he wants to humiliate me, it's fine with me. Well, if that's how you feel, you deserve it. And I thought, all right, thank you. <laughs> Next question. <laughs> the whole thing was kind of absurd. And once they were all in a state of clamor, he silenced them and said, well, big ego, little ego, not caring. He said, he big weather maker. I ask him to make good weather. He makes good weather. Now what do you say? <laughs> Then uh, some of them walked out, and it was <laughs> it was uh, one of those situations that only he could create. You know that um, just didn't know what was going to happen next, and um, so that was that. Apparently, they had good weather that that day, but it had nothing to do with me. And so, and it, it was it was one of those occasions where afterwards I thought. Did you plan this all along? Because it would have been like him to have just thought, I'm going to do this and I'm going to have all this lead up to a situation. Because he was famous for the, um, for the long range choreography of events. So that was just one of the extraordinary manifestations of that.
Namkarate means sky direct. Namka means sky, arte means direct. Theoretically, you find a, a blue sky, rare in Wales. We have a grey sky here, so maybe tinpa arte, cloud direct. But whatever the color of sky, the practice is the same. With most of the Dzogchen silent sitting practices, one has the eyes open and one needs to train in having the eyes open. When the practice is inside a room, one focuses on the finger held at arm's length or a foot further if possible. <laughs> one focuses on the finger, takes the finger away. One brings the finger back to see if it's still in focus. Now it's not actually important where the focus is as long as the focus is in space. We say focusing in space rather than being out of focus because the whole idea of out of focus is based on the idea that there is an object so if there is no object that is not actually out of focus, it's simply focusing in space. So one will employ that in a room, in a shrine hall or wherever. So this is quite a useful way of training the gaze to hold the finger up and focus on it and try to keep it at that one point for a while. Once one has achieved success at doing that, one can forget about it. With Namka Ate, however, one finds an uninterrupted view of the sky and one sits with one's hands on one's knees and one opens the eyes wide and one simply focuses into the sky. Because one is focusing into the sky there is no point of focus. So one sits with one's focus in the sky for a period of time until one reaches a point at which it's possible to exchange sky and mind in terms of what is looking at what. Is mind the sky or is sky the mind? And at this point, one has the experience of finding the presence of, of awareness in the dimension of the sky, in which the sky is indivisible from mind. If thoughts arise, then thoughts are no different from the clouds that arise in the sky. They arise, they dissolve. One does not detain them, 
neither does one object to them being there. If one happens to be disturbed by thought or unable to experience the exchange of sky and mind, one can suddenly and unexpectedly pronounce the syllable ha. Unexpectedly, because one has received the transmission of the practice and it can be enunciated as soon as it occurs. So it shouldn't be planned. One can simply articulate that sound spontaneously if there is no sense of the divisionless nature of sky and mind. This creates the nyam of hedawa in which one finds the presence of awareness. Yeah. Is this a practice you learn from Kunsan Dorje Rinpoche or Jimmy Rinpoche, or does this come from the Arotair? Uh, it's Arotair, but I also learned it from Kunsan Dorje Rinpoche. He, he, told, he taught me the, the Namka Ate, the 21 Semzin, many other practices. There are some slight differences in, in, in the 21 Semzin between what's regularly practiced and Arotep, but mainly they're the same. They all concern finding presence of awareness in a particular context. Usually outside in the wilds. And um, uh, if you look at them, you can see how they're geared up for being a wandering practitioner. You know, if you find yourself in some windy valley, there's a practice. If you find yourself lighting a fire in the evening, there's a practice or, or, the, or, or by a river, then there's a practice. So they're very much geared to living in the wilds. Exchanging of the mind and the space, the sky, as you were describing there, is that done then with sound? The sound yes. of the wind or That's right. the stream or so, it's the same principle mm -hmm. with different objects yeah. with all the elements with water with fire with wind just hearing and seeing or also oh, touch as well with water one can actually sit in water I imagine that was not vastly popular in Tibet but uh, maybe here it's more workable Jacuzzi. Jacuzzi. I was thinking of the jacuzzi. That's, uh... <laughs> we have a set of 21 senzin in three sets of seven. And the latter series particularly lends itself to practicing in the landscape because often you're focusing on um, finding the presence of awareness in the dimension of the sound that you hear. And then another sound will occur. So you transfer your sense of hearing there. So you're constantly moving to what you hear. And also there are practices of visualizing um, the different planes that you can find in the landscape as you 
focus far away there where the, the hill is what has almost disappeared. And then you focus a bit closer and then closer and you bring it back plane by plane. So there are all these, these are quite unusual practices, mm. aren't they? But they're particularly associated with the landscape and the sounds that you hear. Ketan Drukta has been practicing them. Uh, his father, Katra Rinpoche, translated them all into um, Cherki for him. So, uh, because he was interested in these practices, so he now has a set of the 21 Sims in, in Cherki. Uh, or Tibetan, in other words. Uh, um, that language in Bhutan is called Cherke rather than Tibetan. Yeah. It's still actually unusual um, <laughs> to sit here thinking, oh, this is our land not ours in particular, but it belongs to Sarah Chertsong and usually in such an environment it belongs to somebody else. So I, I haven't got used to that yet. Yeah. This is very strange. Oh, it's been 20, 30 years not having land, mm. sitting on someone else's land, practicing. Does it feel different? Yes. I, well, I wouldn't like to say how, but it's it's uh, cer certainly there's the the daily surprise of it not being someone else's land uh, that doesn't that hasn't gone away yet. It's. Uh... I think in in terms of Drala, there's where we talked about earlier about um, the communication between the individual and what they see and the communication of what they see with that individual. I think as you become more familiar with the land, you do develop a different sort of relationship with it when you see it changing through the seasons. The practice of letting the oral attention move to different sounds is, is, is quite fascinating because it, uh, it resembles to a certain degree what happens with mind when it's scattered when you're flitting from one thought to another and this is delightfully similar to that but it's the external sounds that are drawing the attention and the attention just shifts to each new one as it happens which has the effect of scattering conceptuality just quite naturally uh, if you're in a place like this where the birds are twittering you just get sounds like that that come from all directions. Then you get the plips of water on the on the roof here that, that happen as well. Or the sound of the car on the road over there that suddenly come into focus. Do you think your builder is there? secluded retreat cabin on the land somewhere that people can go into. Do you, do you have that sort of thing? Someone goes into a week or oh, month certainly. or so of secluded yes. retreat? Yeah, we, um, that's an important part of the lineage. The, uh, uh, in terms of Dzogchen, we don't go in for the three-year retreat in particular, uh, but it's, it's more uh, a case of retreat being part of life. 
So, I mean, uh, a period of silent sitting is a retreat. Retreat's a funny word, really. It's uh, um, like a lot of the words that I used as part of Himalayan Buddhism, they actually have Christian origins because retreat is not a translation. The, the Tibetan word is tsam, which means um, confines or parameters. So you set the parameters and you live within the parameters. Uh, this is what's given rise to strange names like uh, semi-open retreat or open retreat and we have to qualify the retreat but actually some is just some you know if you if, if part of the some is that you can go shopping every day then that's that some or, or if you can uh Kandra Tenzin Dolka used to live in continual some but hers included pilgrimage so she'd always be on the move practicing in different places uh, so, for us, what's important is that retreat is part of life, so that even half a day or a full day or a weekend, one can do that quite often in a year. If you're saving up for the three months or the month that either happens or not, you can just end up not going into retreat at all. So it's, it's, it's really quite important to have these short retreats that are functional in the context of, uh, of a three-part approach where you have your, your daily silent sitting which is based on your retreat experience and then your daily silent sitting will be informed by your retreat experience and then in addition to that, one has the practice of suspension, which is something that lasts as long as a breath. That whether you're breathing in or breathing out, you simply stop. And the practice lasts as long as you need to breathe again. And as soon as you continue to exhale or inhale, that's the end of the practice and with that suspension everything suspends the breath is suspended which is a symbol and then vision suspends hearing suspends all the senses suspend and the value of that is that it's never claustrophobic because it's too short and there's also a possibility for entering into that practice many times a day, you know, at a traffic light. You have enough time to practice suspension. Or when you stop the car before you get out of it, you can practice it uh, just many times. And if you're practicing that, as well as your daily silent sitting, as well as occasional uh, retreat, be it a day or a weekend, then your practice can really advance. So that's more or less how it's presented to people as, as how to incorporate practice into daily life. But the practice of suspension is particularly important. 
I think that sometimes people who practice even for an hour a day who regard it as well that's the practice over for the day now I can just go and live like everybody else that is that can be problematic so the practice of suspension enables you to take the sense of being a practitioner throughout the day you never leave it behind it's always there as a possibility and that makes a great deal of difference even if it's for such short periods of time what are the marks of an advancing practice uh, loss of knee-jerk responses loss of sensitivity in the unpleasant sense of the word uh, loss of taking offense <laughs> some people are professional offense takers um, it's extraordinary so so that disappears uh, and being insensitive yourself yes but but really um, not particularly that you don't feel angry anymore but that you don't you're not driven by it to bark at somebody you can simply notice and there's no instant impulsion to shout or bark or, or whatever that's the main thing really yeah and being circumspect being able to see around a situation with a degree of spaci spaciousness rather than, as you said, an, a knee-jerk, immediate uh, explosion of emotion. I think the time that I had to work with it the most was in Derridun. I was quite young at the time, but um, I stayed in the Nyingma Gompa at Derridun and uh, there were two dogs there. There was what I envisaged as a big dog uh, and a small dog. And trying to get to sleep, the, the big dog would, would make this sound. <coughs> and then the little dog would, would go. And there was something... <laughs> entirely infuriating about that that sleep was impossible while that little dog was doing that then eventually the little dog would stop and i think ah oh, i hope i can get to sleep before it starts and it would start again and um i think that's maybe one of the times in my life when i've been most disappointed in myself about getting angry because <laughs> i thought Where's the machine gun? Where's the flamethrower? <laughs> and I thought, you've got to get over this. This is ridiculous. You know, they're just dogs. You know, if you're tired enough, you just fall asleep. Whose fault is it? My fault. Um, realizing that everything is my fault is helpful. But that stops anyway. Having to blame other people for everything. You know, if it wasn't for you, it would all be all right. If it wasn't for this happening, it would all be all right. I'd be happy if it wasn't for this, for that, for the other. So when you get some advance in practice, then it suddenly becomes um, the situation. And you don't have to respond to that situation apart from in a kindly manner.
or a helpful manner. So I think that if anybody wants to judge their practice, they have to look at whether they still have knee-jerk responses. And if they do, then their practice hasn't gone very far. That's not to say that when you hit the knee, <laughs> that's still going to happen, that kind of knee-jerk response, but the emotional ones disappear. Very much still alive, not dead. Yeah. Why, these days I can even endure ABBA. <laughs> That's a very advanced... <laughs> it was at the time when Dungse Trinlinobre Rinpoche was visiting and Gary was appointed to be his um, uh, gopher. Yeah. And Dungse um, Trinlinobre asked him if he would come out on his morning walk with him. And apparently on the first walk through the woods, Dungsi Trilinobor Rinpoche said, the trees on my land are better than the trees on Tarsim Rinpoche's land. That's all he said for the entire walk. The next day they went out again. He said, the trees on Tarsim Rinpoche's land are just as good as the trees on my land. Then on the third day they went out, he said, the trees on Tartan Rinpoche's land are better than the trees on my land. And that's all that was ever discussed. Now, why I find this story delightful, I'm unable to explain, as I think Gary was unable to explain why he found it delightful as well. But, um... teaching on Jersey once uh, and, uh, the story about New Jersey is his average age 70 average rank lieutenant colonel and um, someone had invited me there to, to give a teaching on silent sitting so I did and I'd occasionally let out this hut and Eventually, somebody asks me about it, but it's interesting to see how long people will take to ask what it's all about. And finally, this lady, who was apparently in her 90s, said, Young man, that sound you make, is it involuntary? <laughs> I always remember her, she was delightful. I said, no, no, it's deliberate, isn't it? <laughs> Do you often dream of Dujon Rinpoche? Not often. No, they're rare, but they're... Um... What is interesting about them is that I can't say what language he's speaking. I won't say it's English. All I can say is that I, I understand. But waking up afterwards, um, I can always hear the sound of his voice. 
you know, if there's something on Facebook where someone's got a recording of him, I know it's him immediately. It's, um, I, can, I can tell him from any other llama in his speech. The extraordinary thing about Gudrun is that even though he died in 1987, people still have visions of him. Uh, Ketan Jukra in particular, you know, who never even met him, has, has visions of him. And uh, recently many people have been making statues of him. It's, uh, and since this one was made of Dushra with the lifelike face, there's been one made of Chakra Rinpoche, there are all sorts of lamas have now there are these lifelike statues, right down to glasses, you know, spectacles, the whole thing. So I think some of them have been training in, I'm not sure it's Japan or somewhere where there's this art, almost like Madame Tussauds or something, where they're really going for lifelike statues. before haven't you on the podcast yes and of course that was over zoom mm. and now you're here at Tralajong and in that interview we did discuss uh, we discussed a little bit briefly your specialism your favorite practice the kumye um, what could you say about that and why is it your favorite practice I've been practicing for about 25 years and I was a dancer and I just love movement and the further I go with it the more I realize how important it is firstly to silent sitting practice and just changing everything the relationship to that so i think it's it makes silent sitting practice um much more what's the word um it, it works <laughs> so it helps you it it stops thought very quickly and so if you're struggling with shine um then kumye just is such a support for that and then the other thing is it's I've helped people with, you know, that coming, suffering from injuries to come back. And it just seems like there's so many different things and uh, applications. If it's not, if we're not talking about the Buddhist aspect, but we're just talking about exercise. I was teaching Pilates and just gave up teaching Pilates because I just think it's such a good exercise system. Mm -hmm. so. Great. And you've uh, kindly offered to show me mm. some movements. Well, first of all, there's the, the aspects of, we won't do the four da, but there's the four da where you hold your eyes in a particular way and your tongue is suspended. We won't worry about that too much today, but when people come to the class, we practice just that. And then we have this, uh, everything is to massage the tsa, which are all in the, sort of the, these places between the fingers. So the hands are usually open like this. So we'll be practicing that. And some limbs are locked and other limbs are moving. And then we have the most important thing, which is the na core, na being nose, core being circle. And so we do tiny nose circles and um, that massages the tsar as well and it's beautifully disorienting. So a lot of them are like, you know, this. 
So, but I thought the first one is just very easy. It's called Garuda playing in the clouds. Um, they all have names of the animals of the five elements. Um, and it's a lovely one for warming up. All right. All right. Ah, not at all. So um, this is called Garuda playing in the clouds. And another reason I love this, you can go as slow as you like or as fast as you like. Eventually it's supposed to be sort of one second per movement. But we start with our hands here with our fingers splayed. And then you, you keep this leg locked, which is rather difficult, but all right. And then we just kind of lean forward. And as you lean forward, you reach your hands out, make a circle with them and then come back in. And you just keep tap here. Then you're going to go to the back. So you turn your body to the side and you do the same swooping and tap. And then you swoop to the side and tap and or actually bring it down and then you change legs. So keeping trying to keep this supporting leg straight back side. So it's a beautiful one to warm up. And if you've got sort of injuries where you can't jump, it's really nice. You get a higher heart rate, but it doesn't hurt your body. How are you doing? <laughs> and then eventually, with the one second I meant, it's really like you can be really Know, but of course things then go so it's better to just go back to being but you know you can see how it being can be quite athletic eventually when you get used to it so we have no narcor here we're just um facing the front the whole time yeah mm -hmm. good so there's a uh, one that's for shoulders and neck which is quite nice where we're kneeling okay. um perhaps we can face each other or yeah be like this so what you want ideally with this, if you've got bad knees, you don't do this at all, or a bad neck. But we're going to make, we have our feet flat like this, and if people don't, can't do that, they have their toes bent. And then we want out, we're stand up, up on our knees, but you want to be, this is an equilateral triangle. So the, yes, perfect, the length of this from your hip to your knee is the same here, which means you're on the sides of your knee, so it's a little bit uncomfortable. People can put a sheepskin or something. Once again, splayed fingers. And we bring our elbows as far forward, lovely, as we can. And then we just lift our elbows up, back, and down. And you keep your fingers on, yep, yeah, on your arm waist. And that's exactly it. And you keep them splayed, you're a natural. And then we have a slight nose circle, now call with this. So you can orient your nose to one. So if I think of circling with the right arm, and this circle's a little, so I'm just doing a tiny narco. Yeah. And what we do with this is we do 14 slow, going front, back, front up, back, front up, back. So you can do a little narco if you want to, or not if you don't. So here I would be keeping my eyes fixed in my head, but that's all other thing. Nice. And then when we've done 14, which we've just done, you make them a little bit faster. Trying to still bring the arms as far forward as you can. And then when you've done as many as you decide to do, there's all the set numbers in the book, you just freeze and then you go the other way. So you go back and you reverse the narco. Yeah. 
and we do 14 slow. And then seven fast, we'll do 21. So then after that, we'd go, after each exercise, you go into the meditation posture. So we'll just do that, usually for three times as long as it took to do the exercise. But we'll just, so we've got our legs just enough apart that your, your thighs aren't touching. And then you've got your arms not high, but just above a T and your fingers are still splayed. And then you'd be practicing the four dar, so your eyes are wide open, unmoving, tongue suspended, and sorry, your eyes are focused in space. And here's where the meditation happens. So we've massaged the Tsalung system. And here we would just lie and find presence of awareness in the dimension of the sensation. And then after you practice enough, you can experience zapnyams, which are different to normal nyams. I think we spoke about that. And then from zapnyams, you can experience rigpa. So we won't stay there, but that gives you an idea? Mm -hmm. And then we could try something a little bit more active, going into Prowling Tiger. I love this one. So you can get really fit doing this. So here, I'll show it to you first, perhaps, because it's a little bit. Um, so you've got your arms. It's a little bit like a, a plank, um, but you want to be a little bit more up and over your arms. And then your feet are together on your toes. And I'm going to jump around. So the first, the way to start this exercise is just to practice stepping. And you see, I turn my butt, yeah, to go with it. My fingers are splayed on the floor. And I turn my butt so that my leg can almost touch my hand. And I'm keeping this leg straight and the other leg straight as well. And then I swing this way. And then I add a little hop to that. So it looks like this. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. So it's a really nice way of getting your heartbeat up fast and so yeah, feet together, lovely. Perfect, yeah, nice. Yeah. And you're trying to keep your knees, you know, a little bit locked, but don't be yeah, that's perfect. And then just you can just do a little hop onto the leg when you come back. Hop, yeah, beautiful. And then just let your head be down a tiny bit, your neck be a bit more relaxed. That's it. Wow, you're brilliant, Steve. <laughs> we'll have prowling to want to recruit you now. <laughs> yes, prowling tiger. So that one's lovely. And then you would rest again. And when you rest, you then do the exercise three, three times like that with three meditations mm. in between. So they work really well, like, a bit like high impact interval training as well, which yeah. is quite funny, really. Let's try rising eagle. So I love this one too. So this one has a narco. So we've got our um how should we do so we can do it with me facing here so um we've got our legs what's called a jatheb apart which is a handspan more than hip width apart and our hips are just going to go from side to side but without turning mm -hmm. so they're just like they're on a like the abacus or something you know beads so just across like this and then the arms are out here so the hands are palms are fingers are splayed again palms are facing the sky to start and then, even though this is a starting position, it's easier if you start here. So the lower hand is toward the hip that's out. And what we're going to do is make backward circles with our arms like this. 
And as we do that, we're going to take with the hips. So as the arm's lowering, it lowers toward the hip that's out. Really good for the hips. Lymphatic system, <laughs> if you care about that kind of thing. Beautiful for the shoulders. Mm -hmm. How was that one? Fascinating, yeah. So you can feel how that would be so good for lymphatic system. And, but let's finish without those with a, a lion. Um, so this one is really fun. <laughs> so I'll show you this first as well. Walking lion, this is called. So we're on our hands and our knees and you have your feet, toes curled under, which gives you a bit more support. This is an incredible, which you'll recognize because some dancers do this and other people. It's incredible core exercise if you do it properly. And we extend the right arm without crunching and we extend the left foot without breaking the back. And our fingers are splayed and then we go in opposite circles. So clockwise, this is a wonderful one for no thought. <laughs> you can't do this exercise if you think. So clockwise with the arm, anti-clockwise with the leg. And then I follow, I now core in the direction that my arm is going. And then I change. I do the same thing here, clockwise with, anti-clockwise with the arm, clockwise with the leg. Or I like to think of outward circles from the middle of the body. And then the opposite of that, inward circles. Is this making sense? Yeah. Yeah, and then the same here. So you would do either three, five, seven, nine, all the way to 111 circles, and then for each one four times, and then go into the meditation posture. Mm -hmm. Okay. <laughs> we all laugh a lot when we practice this I'm not together. Sure if I can do this you won't be able to. Well, I'll be shocked if you can do it immediately. It's not an easy one. Okay. It's yeah. a lot of fun, though. Yeah. Myself in here. If you, for me, are you a clockwise, anti-clockwise person? Or are yeah. you more, oh, okay. Uh, well, I think so. Because for me, it, it's almost, it feels better to just think of up, out, down, and in, or not touching okay. the floor though. So that one's going like that. Yep, perfect. And that one's going like that. No, that one's going the other way. Up, out, that's oh. it. And that one's going up, out, I might have told you wrong. Yes, perfect. And it doesn't even have to be that big. Yeah, really good. Very good for the butt as well, if you don't, yeah. Nice. And then. See, you truly are natural. Beautiful. So, you know, if you keep your back from moving and you don't bend your knee, this is incredible for the core and the, you can feel it in your butt, yeah? Fantastic. Interesting, yeah. Yeah. Great, that's the Kumye. That's the Kumye. Yeah. And there's, um, there's 111 of them. At the mm. moment we teach 35 and then soon there'll be the second series. Some of the second series will come out. So, you know, but there's ones where you just sit like this, you know, and just move. So I love this system because you, I could give this to a really fit person and yeah. give them a workout oh, yeah. or someone who's in a hospital bed, yeah. you know, so that's what I love about it. And you're still meditating. And, and did you notice you had no thought? Um, yes, I suppose. <laughs> I mean, well, I don't, I don't notice it, which is maybe that's a good sign. Yeah, that's kind of not a lot of space. I don't notice it either way. Yeah. yeah. Very interesting. Yeah, it's very engaging. Great. Mm -hmm. And if you, I can show you a yin core, if you like, from the Gesar system. Um, so these also um, have names of the animals, but with that, they have the elements. So you have a sort of grid. Um, so the first one I'll show you is uh, Earth Lion. So we're really doing Earth, Earth.
Maybe I'll show you Earthline and Space Garuda will go. So with all the geysa, it's a lot like, looks a lot like Tai Chi or Qigong, but we don't, in Tai Chi, people stand, I believe, with the pelvis slightly forward. But we sit as if with the tailbone straight down, in, in basically in the natural curve of the back. And then um, we visualize a white sphere, so that's our Namana Chakra, which is, or Trupa Kolo, or navel. And that white sphere is four fingers breadth around the navel, and it's half in and half out the body. It's visualized as that. And it's a sphere of white light made up of the five colors. So then we're just going to visualize that rising to the heart and lowering back down. And I'll just let you visualize it first and see what happens to your breath, because it usually just falls into place. So we just, here we would also have the four da, so I won't catch you so it's not so hard. Um, so I'm, you know, focusing in space with my eyes wide open, unmoving. This is a lot easier for practicing the four da because you're not doing a no circle and the tongue is suspended. And so then the, the feet can be out. Yeah, you can be very deep, you know, you can be just relaxed. The main thing is to not have tension. And then all the movements when we move are as if you're moving through water. But first of all, just see what happens with your breath when that sphere rises up to the heart and lowers back down in your time. And you can just let me know once the breath is yeah, it's, it's, uh, settled. Slowed. And inhaling, rising, exhaling, lowering. Exactly, perfect. And then what happens, so all the movements in the yin core come from the in out. So like a pebble in a, so that we only move because of, an ex, because of the body's expression of what's internally happening. In the yin core, the meditation is the movement. So what happens basically is that as the sphere lifts, it lifts us under our arms, then our elbows, and it sometimes straightens the knees a bit, and then the hands, and then as it lowers, it does the same thing. And there's this sort of feeling of resisting through water, well, not resisting, but you know, moving through water. So you feel very supported actually with that movement through something that's allowing you to rest on it. And you just allow, here we don't ever lock any limbs because it's a, a martial form. So even though it, these are not about fighting, it still follows that not locking. Yeah, so that's that one. You can let your elbows maybe go a little bit more soft. Yeah, that's it. You can practice these for much longer, but they're quite beautiful to just, if you're walking through the woods or something, to just, and one comes to your mind, or even if you're at home, you just stop, or you can practice them before you sit, or if you're distracted, you can just practice them, get up, stand up, or, so the last one I'll show you is um, called Space Garuda, so now we've gone from Earth, Earth to Space, Space. 
and this one we visualize the central channel and it's basically at that point of the little dent in the head but if people can't find that it's 12 fingers back from the eyebrows and then around there people will find a little dent and then the central channel runs and here we're visualizing it about as Barcher says the size of a McDonald's straw which is in nearly every country or about the size of my finger um, tube brilliant royal blue this color down the front of the spine to the perineum and we're visualizing that once again slightly relaxed knees and we're visualizing it once again you can find the breath I think it's very good to just visualize first and really let the movement come from that if people are practicing this by themselves and what happens here is that central channel starts to expand and it expands down into the earth up into the sky in front and behind us and to both sides so basically it expands all around us and as it does that it becomes a light blue mist and then it coalesces back to that very brilliant royal blue central channel and then you've probably also found that you're breathing in as it's expanding breathing out as it's coming back I was doing the opposite actually drawing it in with the in-breath ah so out with the we start with the things try this it might help with to have the movement we're about at, at the level of the Namana chakra the hands are about eight inches apart you don't have to be too specific but about there and then as it expands it takes our hands out and we're, getting, and we're inhaling light blue mist as far as it goes and then we breathe out as it cold and they ride back in you'll notice I go quite deep into the knees but you don't have no one has to do that and, and then this is just in the time they change a lot the more you practice them with the breath getting longer and all kinds of things And you can just let your chest rather than having to come in you can just let your chest be relaxed that's it nice So, yes, and Maisel Gelma hold that, that lineage through Rinpoche and Dechen, yeah. Fantastic. Wow. Thank you for the demonstration. Thank you. Impressive. It was wonderful to it. work with you. You were truly a natural. Because some drinking companions requested that either drinker Jigra Yeshi Dorje sang this spontaneously. Within the supreme self-existing skull cup of happiness, the swirling oceans of shining essence tigle. Above, the five seed syllables appear and become the Yabyum Buddhas of the five elements. Blood of blessings flows from their ecstatic union. They move in great joy, melt in light and dissolve into the spatial essence. Om Ah Hung. 
The three syllables reign from the dimension of space and the precipitation manifests as Dutsi, a treasury of desirable qualities whose colour, taste and fragrance are powerful. Om Ah Hum, Ha Ho Hri. Offerings multiply. Happiness arises upon perceiving the wondrous, unsurpassed Dutsi of the heroes and heroines of the world. I offer this to the pervading masters, my most kind lamas, the holders of the six lineages, the three jewels, the three spheres of being, peaceful, joyous, and wrathful Irams, Mamos and Bikinis, protectors of the inner tantras, Tema protectors, protectors of the treasuries of phenomena, protectors of the ground of being, the Sanjay Kilko of my body, duality and non-duality, and to the infinite purity of the phenomenal world. Ah ho, wonderful. In this way, nobody becomes unhappy when drinking. Alalaho, marvellous. She Susol, please drink. <laughs> the Tsatsum and Buddhas drink in the space of existence. Cherking and Strungma drink with awareness. Lamas drink on their thrones. Dharma friends drink sitting in rows. Monastics drink secretly. The Gurkha Changlade drink openly. Old men drink proudly. Old ladies drink smilingly. Men drink noisily. Women drink swayingly. Youths drink playfully. Girls drink laughingly. I, the Tantrika, drink happily. We drink happily without reference points to cause dissatisfaction. Because this apparitional banquet, free of referentiality, is offered to the illusory body, what we drink is a sacred feast. Anxiety is therefore unnecessary, and we remain relaxed. Because appearances are infinitely pure, discrimination is unnecessary, and we remain serene. Because self-existent wisdom is total, effort is unnecessary, and we rest with cheerful minds, the part of happiness we follow arises due to the kindness of the lamas. Alalaho, Kelpazan. Alalaho, Kelpazan. Kelpazan. To perhaps explain the hand position. This was a mudra that was evolved by Shimi Rigsen Rinpoche uh, for the Western wine glass. Uh, the three fingers underneath are the kusum, the three kayas. The thumb and little finger are emptiness and form. The five fingers around the top are the five elements. So that is how it's held when uh, the recitation is proceeding. And then for toasting each other with Kelpazang, which um, means we are happy, it's held like this, with the three fingers underneath in a straight line along with the one on the top. And these are the five elements again. It's, it's, it is a secure position once you get it. <laughs> even though it doesn't feel like it. And then everyone clinks glasses with everyone else and mm. says Kalpazang. Wonderful, thank you very much. <laughs> Happy birthday. Mm. Thank you. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> Many more. Mm. Most definitely. One of the things we tell people who, who have an interest in this tradition is that, you know, this is not a way of life as Buddhism is often presented. It's not a spiritual technology. It's not necessarily a way of achieving any great state of mind. It's a religion. It's an unpopular word, which is part of the reason we use it. But if you look at it, 
especially as it is in the East, it has all the aspects of religion, apart from a lack of God. <laughs> That's the only thing that divides it. And one of the things that, that always goes wrong for people is when they want something out of it for themselves that is too immediate to be goal-oriented, you know, enlightenment. It is a big problem for people that they want to achieve exalted states rather than join a religion. So that's what we always say. This is what you're doing here. You're joining a religion. If you want to be part of something, you can be. But you need to be happy just being part of it. And then if you attain the non-dual state, well, wonderful, you know. But, you know, going for that as what you want is not always guaranteed to be useful in your life or something you're really going to be able to maintain. So there are many aspects here. You know, if you look around this place, you look at the shrine room and you look at all the work people are putting into it. Um, you know, you're looking at something... Uh, you know, like the local church where the ladies are making these um, needlepoint uh, hassocks of scenes of the local village. Um, that has more <laughs> in common with what we're doing than a lot of what we see in Western Buddhism. You know, that particularly this emphasis on uh, trying to take Dzogchen out of Buddhism. It can be practiced on its own. Uh, that's an entirely modern idea. It never happened in Tibet. It didn't exist on its own. Anyone who ever practiced Dzogchen practiced it along with uh, Vajrayana and with Sutra also. This is one of the things actually that Namkai Noba Rinpoche stated. You know, you, you shouldn't uh, look down on the lower vehicles. Uh, or, or even see them as lower vehicles. There is just the whole spread of teaching. And you need to really, to be able to access all of it. Uh, th that's important, but... Um, I'm not sure how long the Dzogchen on its own is going to last as a fashion. It'll probably go on until people realize that it doesn't really lead anywhere. And they give it up. But um, that seems to be infecting a lot of people at the moment, the idea that that's possible. What does that look like when somebody's trying to do Dzogchen by itself in that way? Well, to me it looks a little bit like uh, being on the spacecraft where you've got tubes of grey nutritious paste that you eat every day or so I was told and um, it's it, it, you know it, it doesn't feed the whole person and so it's not going to survive because we don't live our lives uh, entirely in a state of spiritual intensity <laughs> Uh, you know, life is a spread of different emotions, um, different activities, and, and so what's required is something that feeds the whole human being. 
And you can only get that with something that, whether it's called a religion or not, it doesn't matter, but it looks like a religion. It, it has a history. It has people about whom there are stories. Um, it has special times in the calendar of the year or in the month. Uh, it has names. Uh, it, it has foodstuffs. You know, momos, for example. Uh, you know, momos I, I aren't going to uh, introduce you to the nature of mind. I'm not saying that, but... Um, if you're hungry in pursuit of the nature of mind, then there are momos, you know, and, and, and they do play a part. It's, there's something delightful about the spiritual culture. And without the culture, people basically starve to death and they give it up because they don't achieve what they want to achieve. And people invariably want to achieve it too quickly What's the difference between what you're talking about and somebody who wants to imitate the culture of the country where the religion has come from? Is there a difference there? That is also a problem, yes. Um, there's nothing you can do, but there's no problem. So uh, I, I met a lot of people who were born-again Tibetans when I was first in India, and I was generally reviled for finding anything interesting in Western culture. So, uh, you know, you, you Bach, uh, Shakespeare, uh, this is just Western trash, you know. And I'd say, no, I don't think that's entirely accurate. So, um, uh, although I may look f fairly um, Tibetan in this, well, apart from the hat, but... Um, uh, I've never abjured Western culture. Uh, I, I've always loved blues. I've always loved Baroque music. I've always loved literature. So it's a lot of that was thinking that Tibetan culture was better than Western culture uh, rather than simply different. So the religion has a certain amount of the culture in it. And I think it's useful to take enough of it, enough of it to be workable for a culture in the West. Uh, with what we do here, it's not entirely Tibetan. Uh, it's, for example, you know, the offering bowls are something that we employ only on retreats and special occasions. It's not an everyday thing, and there are many things that are not everyday in that way. So, our whole mode of operation is, is is that we take of the culture that which is supportive, and that's just not everything, you know. So uh, we celebrate losa, and uh, we take on quite a few things like that, even a little bit of Tibetan folk dance that, that some people learn for losa and put that on as a as a celebration piece, but. Um, and we, it, it's not the central practice, it's supportive, and we remember that it's supportive, and, and that's its main function. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
I always like uh, what you say about uh, a religion, Rinpoche, about the fact that it provides something that's um, bigger than me. Mm. Um, that it's uh, that's a very useful thing mm. as something that's bigger than you are. Yeah. I, actually, that's the main thing. <laughs> <laughs> that it's bigger than me. It's, mm. it's, it's uh, you belong to something, and yeah. that um, you know there are duties that go with that. You know, if you belong to something, there are duties, and those duties are important. That you know, it's not, you know, everything has to be what I decide, and and that's something of a trap. I guess the idea of blaming religion for um, negative actions perpetrated in the name of religion—that's why people. Um, that word religion is a dirty word, isn't it? And we all shy away, well, we don't shy away from it, but many other people shy away from it. Um, but in any group, it's the people that make the group, it's the people that make the religion or unmake the religion. Um, I mean, it, you get abusive doctors but you don't give up medicine, you don't give up seeking help for your physical problems. So it's always a mistake to blame the um, the structure rather than the people who perpetrated the negative actions. One thing that's really surprised me about being a practitioner, I was saying this to Rinpoche and Leitchen a little while ago, is I never believed in community. I just thought... I'm a loner who needs community. And after sort of over 20 years of being in the Sangha, I just, I really see the value of a good community, you know, and how much it can really do for people. You know, it's supportive, um, but it also, you're held to account. Um, but it's amazing that there's just sort of so much support and love from people and acceptance. So I think when it's a good community, which I didn't believe, so it's similar to the religion, I thought that about community, but seeing it work well is amazing. Why do you think it works well here? Uh, because of our Lama's example. <laughs> um, and the humour. I think humour is what um, really is, isn't it? It's just, a, a, just continuing to try to be the best you can be, but not being serious about it and pious and we're really encouraged. When I first asked if I could be an apprentice, the first thing Natural Rinpoche said to me is, we just ask our apprentices to be kind and considerate to each other. And I really took that on board. And I think that everybody's accepting you for who you are, no matter how wacky that is. That transforms people. That in itself, I think, transforms people. And that we are really individuals here, aren't we? I'm not. <laughs> 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 that's become um, uh, a famous response now since the life of Brian when anyone says we're all individuals someone's bound to say I'm not <laughs> that was so clever you know so, <laughs> which of course makes him the only individual there that <laughs> what does it mean to you Metso and Jaguar to belong to something bigger than yourself to this word religion community uh, 
Yeah, I haven't really particularly thought about community, actually, but um, the belonging to something bigger, that was definitely the thing that I noticed when I became an apprentice. You know, I, I felt like I was, you know, I was doing some interesting things in terms of spiritual practice before um, studying with Rinpoche and Candidates and, and becoming part of the Sangha. But part of me felt like I was just... Um, becoming cleverer mm. actually and more able to uh, more skilled at self-delusion <laughs> so actually that's also what happens and that's what happens when you have teachers but it's also what happens when you're part of a sangha because you get that uh, you get your um you get yourself reflected back at you um and being in with a group of people who are uh, whatever else they are, and however much they might not be the people that you would seek out to be friends with, they're all um, trying. Mm. Um, and that's really, that shifts something, I think. It's quite profound to spend your time with people who are really doing their best. I mean, I think everyone's doing their best, but you know, there's a kind of concerted effort within a Sangha. Um, so yeah, that's the, uh, I think it's the most, yeah, I think it's kind of the most useful thing that it provides is this something that's not me, something that's beyond me and bigger than me, because that's, I see that as being a bit of a problem. And uh, yeah. for me, I think I addressed this actually in the first interview I did with you, what it was that got me into Buddhism, because I don't come from a religious background and that, but I started to read about Buddhism, especially uh, yogis and uh, meditators in caves and things. And I thought this was really interesting. I found that really inspiring and I wanted to follow in that footsteps. So for me, it was following in those in that tradition. And it's been like that since then. People try too hard to escape from it as if if it could be called a religion it was going to have a problem but there are plenty of things that are called, that aren't called religions that have problems you know you, you can't escape it by just avoiding the word um, and then sometimes people talk about organized religions well um, I, I'm not sh quite sure what that is because if s several people want to get together for dinner, there has to be organization <laughs> there. Otherwise, they'd all end up somewhere else. So you've got to organize something. But um, maybe that's being too literal with the word. But um, I think the more structure you have, um, the more it throws people up against each other. Mm -hmm. And that in itself then is a bit more uncomfortable for people, isn't it? Like having this place, it throws people together with their um, particular issues more than if they're not, they just come together twice a year in a hired place. So, I think that one of the things is probably with organizations is, is the rules. Yes, what is known as dogma. Yes, or, or, or simply rules of what you're not allowed to do. Now, we have rules, but 
the the thing about the rules is that uh, they're all adaptable according to individual human beings. So the rule doesn't take precedence over over human beings. It's a guideline. So we don't have many rules that are hard and fast. I can think of one which is smoking. We don't take smokers. That's a hard and fast rule. But there are other rules that are always adaptable. So I, I think maybe organized religion where, where the rules are not adaptable is, is perhaps a problem for people. Um, maybe... I'm not sure whether where the Church of England stands now on 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 divorce uh, for its priests for its vicars whether divorce is allowable whether you can marry a divorcee or not but that's always seemed to me like it's a rule that ought to be adaptable because there are human beings involved and um, I don't quite see. Uh, uh, upsetting people's lives for the sake of a rule where someone could say, well, in this case, I'm going to allow it because there are factors here. Uh, this all comes out of watching the Grantchester Mysteries. <laughs> just, just seeing the situation and thinking, no, if I was the bishop of whatever, I'd say, all right, well, fine, <laughs> So that's it tends to be where we come from that we look at the people and we say well yes I know you're supposed to do that and this but um, in, in your case because of this that and the other I don't see why it should be entirely necessary uh, uh, maybe that's possible because it's such a, a relatively small group of people you know we can do that but mm. but that's always been a principle we've applied that there's the rule and how it functions for the individual. Um, so maybe that makes it not like a religion because maybe religions don't function in that way and there are hard and fast rules. But, um, I suppose this, this whole question of redefining is going to go on all the time, you know, in terms of people trying to explain what this actually is, where the word gets in the way. There are some people who shall remain nameless who are, who are extracting the essence and um, they sometimes have a following. And um, what occurs to me about it is when they're gone, what are people going to do with that? Mm. When we're gone, uh, there are many different lamas out there who know us, who, who our students can go to these people who will understand where they've come from so people are not left high and dry uh, because if you go out and do something that's so different basically you're saying I'm Jesus, I'm Muhammad, I'm, I'm one of those world religion creators but if you're not you're leaving people high and dry and, and th that's really unfair to people to do that to them so, I mean, there's so many people out east who people could go to and say, you know, our teachers have died, would you help us? And 
who, who know who their teachers were, know their lineage, maybe not entirely, but um, know it enough to understand what it was. Our students have gone out to the East and uh, that they've shown them various things and they said, oh yeah, it's Dzogchen lineage, we know this. So it's understandable. But if it's no longer understandable, uh, you know, when you start calling it radical Dzogchen, you think, hang on. <laughs> What's... You know, that's like saying wet water or something, you know. <laughs> you, know you don't want that dry water, you want wet water. Uh, I find that <laughs> whatever is attemptedly being expressed by that, uh, I don't I don't quite see it. You know, I don't think there's any need for describing it in that way. One of the issues around this is the way that people use language without thinking. Mm. I've known it all my life. It was when I was at school, when everyone was a Marxist, everyone was talking about the, prolet the, the proletariat, the bourgeoisie, and the, you know, you've got these buzzwords and everybody knows mm -hmm. them and you become one of the club by being able to use these words. And um, at art school, uh, you know, everyone you didn't like was a bourgeois cretin, you know. It is, uh, um, um, you know, and it's like this, you know, organized religion, I, I, I don't want organized religion. And you think, well, what do you even mean by the term, you know? Have you ever thought about it? Or what does it mean to you? And many people just use language like this without thinking about it, about what it means, implies, or whatever, or, 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 or what counts as that thing. I mean, whatever they go to as an alternative has to be organised in some way, doesn't it? And it just may be disguised in some of the New Age culture. We should, we should advertise a course, you know, and just not turn up and say, well, this is not organized religion. What do you expect? Did you expect anyone to be there? <laughs> we're, we're the disorganized religion, you know, that's... Uh... <laughs> yeah. I'm curious about the something you said earlier, contradiction that symbolism isn't always convenient. <laughs> and you yeah, were referring right? at that time to... The robes you were wearing, which got wet when we were walking through the forest. But that's the nature of being contained by your religion, isn't it? And contained by your vows. We, we wear the robes when we're representing the tradition. We don't wear them all the time, because we're not representing the tradition formally all the time. But, I mean, we wear our uncut hair all the time, and that's inconvenient. Um, but that's the nature of being contained by something that's greater than mm. than yourself. Um, I mean, if you, if you always do everything you want to do, it, it, that runs out of its own steam in the end, and you just get bored, don't you? And you keep moving from thing to thing in order to find what's next, the next exciting thing to do. So you... You, you can never get anywhere or change with anything like that because you're always in charge of your own rules. Mm. That's the problem, being in charge all the time. Being the biggest thing. Yes. I think there's a lack of inspiration as well in being in charge. You know, when you can be inspired by people, mm. like your teachers, 
that's a wonderful thing because mm. it's like mm. you mm. you know you come to a retreat and you get re-inspired and yeah. you go forward mm. and i think that's that's a huge mm. aspect as well mm. isn't it? i mean one thing about inspiration is that it doesn't always go one way it goes both ways yes because teachers, lamas, can get in, inspired by their students' efforts and oh God, yeah. Oh, yeah. the way that people can change, really mm. change. Mm. So it doesn't, it's not a one-way system, which no. is, you, you wouldn't know that unless you'd experienced it, would you? So it's great. That's one of the things I found with being a brevet. I felt like these, this few students that, with the criminals that yes. helped me to be a better teacher. Mm. Or um, and yes, and I had that experience of them inspiring me. Mm. However, Jagula is an inspiring barbecue, barbecue. maestro. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for listening to another Guru Viking podcast. For more interviews like these, as well as articles, videos, and guided meditations, visit www.guruviking.com. <laughs>